Hello, and welcome back to Metastation for our recap of episode 510, The Warrior's Will. Um, the Warrior's Will do what? We'll find out. <laughs> I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. Uh, I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And this week we are going to start with Clark and Maddie, really primarily because uh, this storyline confirmed a theory that we had about the Becca, <laughs> Promheta, and Cadigan backstory that we've been talking about since like last season, like early last season when we when Cadigan first showed up and it was we first got like hints that he was connected to Becca, um, which is that. Cadigan killed Becca. We knew it. We called it. We were we talking about this it. for like an entire fucking year or more. We knew that bastard killed Becca. We knew it and we were right. Oh my god. And and he didn't just he didn't just kill her. He burned her at the stake like burned a fucking her witch. At the goddamn stake. Like he was King James the 1st. <laughs> with his fucking witchcraft treatises, like, holy, if all the, so like, so, you know, so we talked a lot, like, if you guys, if if you, if any of our listeners have not listened to our season four podcast, you can go back and listen to them and hear us, like, screaming about this and how excited we are about this possibility and what it could mean for the sort of backstory and history of the, um, the, uh, flame cult and who shaped it and why there are connections between Cadigan's cult and, you know, the Flamekeeper cult and blah, blah, blah. But the one thing that we did not ever in a million years think of is that he burned her at the fucking stake. I, and yet, and yet, once I saw it, I was like, this is perfect. This is exactly is. how he would do it because, like, he would have to, like, in order for him to maintain his power over these people, he has convinced them that he and his religion is the only way that anybody could have survived the apocalypse. So her arrival mm -hmm. on Earth mm -hmm. fucks with his entire theology, which means that he would have to frame everything that she is offering to them as a bad, evil thing that has to be destroyed, where he has the only, like, you know, the only true way to salvation and survival, essentially. Um, like, so he couldn't, like, he couldn't have just, you know, like, shot her. He could have just been like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, everybody just get the yeah. injection. It's all good. Yeah. And he, no, but he, he, had and he, also, to, he had to figure out a way. He had to, like, delegitimize her somehow or, yes, exactly. or remove yeah. her he somehow. He couldn't, he couldn't just kill her and take the chip. He would have to... Um, like, it would have to be public and performative and a, like, teachable moment to all the rest of the people about the dangers of technology. Like, this mm – -hmm. and I don't I don't know how much of this is a retcon and how much of this is stuff that kind of already existed in, in the writers' minds when they were first kind of fleshing out the Cadigan side of, of this backstory, which they've been building in very subtly in the background. Like how much of this that you know they sort of knew going into it, but I feel like you know the um, the idea that the the fear of technology that is sort of hardwired into grounder lore came from 
them watching Becca be, you know, murdered because she brought this technology, which Cadigan said was like, no, it is cursed. Um, but also used it like that he kept mm-hmm. he or somebody kept putting the flame in people. So so I think the big question is like, did um, like at what point did those things begin to merge? Like at what point did yeah. the flame and the belief system that technology is evil um, and only like one person per generation who is the flame keeper, you know, knows knows the secret that actually the thing is a piece of technology. Um, you know, like I think I think the one the one potential wrinkle in in this, the one place where our our brilliant theories may have been off is I I wonder if our idea that Cadigan was the first flame keeper is potentially negated by this and maybe somebody else came along after Cadigan or behind Cadigan's back and the sort of like well, the merging yeah. of those two things came from that. But I don't know. But it also could have been like But like the funny thing is but like there's a lot of I, I think I thought of that too, but then but we know like for instance Gaia one of Gaia's tattoos as a flame keeper is the second dawn logos. Oh that's true. And like and like the the um that like the circular thing that has all of the clan like and the clan logos yeah, yeah, yeah. come from Cadigan and mm-hmm. um the like from the ashes we will rise catchphrase oh, that's comes from Cadigan. Yeah. You know, so I it's not really clear and and, and I you know I, I think there's like so there's a bunch of clues. So it feels like at some point um, either Cadigan or someone loyal to Cadigan co-opted the flame and the night blood and sort of and, and clearly like created a mythology that made it mystical rather than technological. Right, right. Um, and sort of like built this religion around it. And so the sort of question mark is like where in the process, where between like burning Becca at the stake and like what happened between that and what we see later uh to sort of merge those two things and and so i think so i think okay so so at first i was like oh my god maybe that's you know that's why it's called the flame cuz she's burning the flames but then becca calls it the flame when she's i realized like on rewatch when she's being burned alive she says something like the flame can save us all um so maybe it's not that. But it does like I mean I remember watching that and thinking like that adds a whole new wrinkle to from the ash for, to from the ashes we will rise being a grounder part of a grounder prayer. Exactly. Um yeah. so the idea that like which makes me think like okay so like did that come from like they burned Becca but the flame survived the fire and they were able to sort of like like it's power to survive fire so you know like something like that like like they sort of took that fact that the the flame came out of these ashes and became the thing that saved them that might be where that kind of piece of the mythology came from um someone on twitter uh yesterday suggested to me the idea um uh that maybe that becca survived being burned alive because nightblood somehow protected her from the flames Oh. And that, and so, like, and that was how, like, that was, that was the thing that made her, like, a god rather than just, like, a, a rival to Cadigan, which is a possibility. But I, I don't, but I'm sort of like, okay. I mean, I guess Nightblood is, like, nebulous enough that, like, they could recon and be right. like, oh, yeah, it makes you impervious to being burned alive. But, like, and, and we did see, you know, and, and 
Clark survived and recovered from those radiation burns. Right. Thanks to Nightblood, but I it I would be a little bit like I that would that might be a sort of like pseudoscience bridge too far. Right. For me. Well, it would to, <laughs> Yeah, I mean if, I, if if Nightblood was like literally, you know, flame retardant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think so so I mean, I, I the a lot of this is stuff where like these may be questions that we will never get answers to unless we dip back into them for another round of flashbacks, which like I don't want to be greedy. Like if this is all we'll get, I'm still happy with it. But but yeah, I yeah, do yeah. feel like um it is true that um the you know the biggest point against Bill Cadigan being the person who kind of single-handedly crafted what became Grounder Lore is the reverence for Becca. Mm. You know, well, like I mean, Becca, the first commander, it, as like yeah. this sort of holy figure, you know, like if he burned her because she was a witch and he wanted to like, you know, like I I, th- I think to me it sort of gets into, and we can talk about this more when we get to Octavia, but like the, you know, the Becca, Monty slash Cadigan, Octavia parallels were really interesting to me because it's like you have somebody um, saying like, like offering people a choice, offering them science, offering them a mm-hmm. way to live without violence, offering them, um, you know, options of like the the world that you think that you have and the way that you think that you have to be isn't the only way to be. And like, I'm here to show you a different way. And then you have these two, you know, cult leaders, essentially, back uh, Cadigan and Octavia, who can only function as a leader, if the threat of that peaceful science non-war option is completely wiped out. And so Cadigan has to demonize Becca and kill her publicly in front of all the people and destroy her and basically be like, see, this is what happens when you like let technology, you know, into your life. Like it's, you know, it's a curse. It kills you. The same way that Octavia burning Monty's farm is basically like, okay, like now, like, like now you have to follow me because I've taken your choice away, you know, like using fire. Yeah. Um, so I feel like, you know, but like the temple under like the Polis temple that has like, you know, like it has Becca's dropship. There's that kind of drawing on the wall of, you know, of her sort of silhouetted body where like, I think, you know, like it could be her falling from the sky, but it also could be her rising. Like that isn't clear, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because she didn't, like because when she fell, she fell in the ship. She didn't fall. Like it's and that's like a, like a silhouette of like a woman's body, you know. So it could mm-hmm. it could be sort of like a resurrection metaphor instead of a like you know goddess falling to earth kind of thing, you know. So so it feels to me like there's a lot of like, um, you know, there's a lot. Well, okay, there's a lot of overlap. But on the other hand, okay, so would Becca participate in? The creation of a cult in which, you know, you have people fight to the death over who gets the flame. You know, like, or I I just, I feel like there's a lot of, like, Becca, okay, so Becca becomes deified, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of, like, specific parts about what the commander cult became that feel to me like, like, Becca would not be like, yeah, cool, okay, so, like, you know, fights to the death over power, and right. um you know and like uh, including children and uh yeah so so what i so what i sort of wonder because the thing about okay so burning becca at the stake 
Like, historically, one thing that happens a lot of the time when you burn your enemies at the stake in order to quash their ideological uh, opposition to you is you become, you know, Bloody Mary, um, who Queen Mary the First, who did not kill as many Protestants or did, did not kill as many sort of like religious dissenters as, you know, like Elizabeth or Henry VIII, but she did burn them at the stake. And that's the thing, like, and so they became martyrs and she became evil. You know what I mean? So, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so, but one way to take the power away from a martyr um, is to co-opt them, right? So, like, so if Cadigan took Becca after she's dead, if he said, she's a god now, you know, like, I'm the only one who has access to her secrets, um... Like, especially if he figured out that there's something on the flame that he needed, you know, like if the, if he wanted to keep him access to technology for himself, but he wanted that power, you know, of the flame to go to someone he could control, I could see him could, you know, sort of creating the flame keeper, um, sort of a s- aspect of the religion so that he could sort of like maintain, so, so he could sort of like keep another Becca from happening, someone who would come along and sort of like be able to interrupt his influence. So, yeah, like I, I feel like there's a, um, I think there's a, there's a powerful argument to be made that whoever the second commander is, is probably where those things became merged and it would have to be a second Dawn person who kind of has both of those things in them. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody who, Who like he inoculate he gave like Nightblood to one person who was like one of his followers or whatever. And maybe he even picked a child because children can be controlled. I don't know. But um but but yeah, so so like the first commander, Becca being the first commander, becomes the myth, becomes the mythology, becomes the kind of like the way that you sell this. And then everything else is built on that religion, which, and it makes me wonder because, okay, so here's the thing. So I think it seems like to me giving as a plot thing, giving Maddie the flame has two main functions. Number one, it divides one crew. So you have, you have like, you're setting up for, you know, for a sort of civil war within one crew and for Octavia to lose her sort of hold on them. Second, it seems to me that, there's a you know because this episode there's a lot of emphasis on she now knows what the commanders know right like she they talk to her she experiences these memories and she says to Clark when you know when when Clark is like have you seen enough to know that you don't want to see, want to see anymore and Maddie says yes and Clark is like all right well then let's take it out and Maddie's like no I can't they want me to see it they want me to feel it that's how like she says that's how it's worked so like so clearly there was something about when, when the flame goes in your head, you have all these commanders and they want you to keep telling the next commander about what happened to them, about the, what they experienced, and particularly about the violence and the pain that they experienced. And like Clark also says, you know, in that moment where Maddie says, like, I know that's why that's what you're afraid of. Like, and and Clark says commanders die badly. Like, so there's a lot of emphasis on the command, the experience of being a commander and getting the flame being wrapped up in the cycle of violence, you know, that it's all of like that you die violently, that, that you experience violence and pain and strife. And what it makes me wonder with the, with the Becca flashback and kind of these possibilities is what if the commanders 
going back to Becca, have been trying to tell the new commander, like, trying to tell them, look, this is what happened. This is where we started. It doesn't have to be like this. And that message has never been effectively conveyed, like, maybe because... You know, because, like, there's a lot of interference from other things happening, you know, like clan war, the, the wars among the clans, and then the flame keepers, you know, kind of being married to a version of this mythology that wants to keep it alive. Like, what if the, what if the sort of end game of this is that finally Maddie is the one who's able to kind of, like, listen to Becca Promhetta and get to the actual message that, like, this sort of, like, you have to experience this pain over and over again. You have to keep see, you have to see the pattern that keeps happening. Because the point is not, because this is going to happen to you, but because the point is it doesn't have to be like this and you can break the cycle. I like you can be that. the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be the one who recognizes what, you know, what, like the flashback of, of Becca dying, like besides just maybe, maybe other commanders are sort of like the point is you experience the pain and you endure it and you understand it and whatever. But maybe the actual point is Becca saying, it doesn't have to be like this. You don't have to do this. I can save all of us. The flame can save all of us. Um, you know, like he tries trying to tell you he's, this is the only way to stay alive, but he's wrong. So maybe the point, like finally Maddie, and especially once Maddie with, with Monty coming, you know, with the algae to terraform and the, and the sort of parallels, that parallel between, um, you know, you have Octavia shutting down an actual peaceful solution because she wants, because she's so wrapped up in, in her own sort of like, uh, cult of personality and, and the way that that kind of enables her and her like sunk cost sort of fallacy of like, we've come this far, I have to keep going. Um, you know, there's a parallel with that and Becca and Cadigan. So maybe Maddie might be the one to finally say like, okay, wait, no, what we actually need to do is stop fighting. The point, like what Becca Prom had, what the first commander was always trying to say is that fighting and violence and eliminating each other isn't the solution that, there's a scientific way, you know, like, like there's a serum, right? There's, there's night blood was a serum. And then like the algae is a serum, you know, there's a way to heal the damage that we as human beings have done to ourselves and the earth through technology and through our own flaws and through our own sort of cycles of violence. We can break that cycle. Yeah. And, and that like, the sort of the moral compass that we've been seeing all along that Maddie has, where she believes in the goodness of people and she believes in hope and possibility and, and that she's like internalized this, this very different sense of the way the world can be than, you know, than, than the culture that, that, you know, the culture around her, you know, like she's, mm-hmm. she's the one, she's the one nightblood novitiate, you know, commander candidate who has sort of, because of her and her family kind of self-selecting out of the social structure that shaped every other nightblood and kind mm-hmm. of infused exactly. them with these set of beliefs. Like her yeah, outsiderness yeah, yeah. now means that she didn't grow up the way like Aiden grew up and Lexa grew up and Luna grew mm-hmm. up, like under Titus and, you know, and under this kind of... um like repressive controlling. Cause the other thing too is like, like this is where, where the role of the flame keeper becomes really interesting is like, um, especially like looking at it in terms of like Titus and people like Titus, not so much people like Gaia, but like, um, you know, uh, another thing that every other commander except for Maddie has clearly 
taken away from their access to Becca's memories is they all still believe that technology is bad. Like they all still perpetuate this belief that it's not safe. It's not to be trusted. You know, we don't touch guns. We don't have technology. We don't, you know, any of that stuff. Um, Like they, they maintain this anti-technology way of life, even though presumably every other one of them has seen that same message that Maddie has, but Mm -hmm. But, Maddie, but by the time they get it, they, they've been so immersed exactly. in the ideology of the flame yeah. keepers and yeah. and of this this training in this world that they they can't understand it. And what's interesting about Gaia, I think Gaia as the flame keeper who breaks the cycle is that I mean Gaia, you know, she's been living with technology for six years now. Like she is she is that 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 aspect of the sort of flame keeper cult the commander cult um i think is at least like been thoroughly shaken if not completely you know like guy isn't afraid of technology anymore she doesn't she doesn't think it's evil um and and like indra isn't afraid of guns you know like so so that aspect of things has gone away so maddie didn't grow up like quite like that and she's been with with clark long enough that you know she understands that technology is a tool and it's something that you can do good things with as well as bad things um gaia has also seen you know that that technology is a tool is merely a tool you know that that can be good or bad um gaia is also very young you know and she's she's sort of she's had six years kind of like in a world that isn't totally governed by the commander cult not that she isn't still a believer you know particularly in becca promhetta but like She's seen a different way enough. I, th- I think. I think there's a lot of hints that that Gaia is also that you know that that, that Maddie is the commander who can sort of break that cycle and and maybe if I'm right about like what the kind of like true point of of the flame memories are, who can kind of understand that. But also a lot of hints that Gaia is the flame keeper who's different from other flame keepers. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who's who's not like Titus in that I think. I think her like faith is truer and purer. Um, and she's not as she's not as like she's not so married to the status quo. You know what I mean? Like she has true faith, but she does it, but she's not but she has faith, not dogma, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I also think like I I think I don't know how much of this is is deliberate or how much of this is just sort of like how it kind of comes across on screen, but I also think it makes a difference that she's a woman. I think that between Titus and Cadigan... And a woman of color. color, Yeah, like the Titus, like two white guys, I think it makes a huge difference that Gaia is a young black woman. Yeah. Whereas like with Titus, I think think the line, like like the the compelling case for Cadigan as being the person who established um, the role of the flame keeper is that you could very much see, you could draw straight lines from... Titus's kind of like controlling dictatorial behavior, paternalistic, you know, like, kind of like patriarchal, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like bending the rules when they you know fit him, like you know, like it's against my religion to like touch a weapon, but I will use this gun to like you know, like frame Clark or like you know like shoot this person, you know, because she brought technology into our whatever, you know, like like the, he you know willing to sort of like adapt the rules for his own benefit willing to Mm -hmm. um, strategically withhold information, all of that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. feels like, you know, drawing like a straight line back to Cadigan 
and Cadigan's control over his people being enacted in a particular way that feels very at odds with the kind of world that, you know, that Becca was trying to build. And I think that because of who she is, because of being kind of the the last of her people, because in her own way, she's kind of, you know, a misfit. She's got this complicated relationship with, you know, with Indra where like there's mm-hmm. all this sort of family division of like, you know, who are you going to grow up to be? You were supposed to be a warrior. Why are you this instead? Um, so she, she like Maddie is not a product of this sort of nice, clean, endlessly perpetuating lineage of people who do it the way you're supposed to do it and mm-hmm. then kind of absorb the beliefs that everybody else around them has, I think that Gaia and Maddie are people who have a merged set of experiences because of like knowing and being close to and having relationships with people who came from Sky Crew, just that itself sort of fundamentally shakes up. You know, I mean, and and, and like we even saw it like even, you know, what's happening with Lexa, like, like realizing that that the way that you think is the only way for people to be is not the only way for people to be kind of forces you to relook at the things that you sort of took for granted as being like, you know, enshrined in law. And I think that for Maddie, Mm -hmm. you know, growing up with Clark and for Gaia spending all that time, you know, in, in the bunker sort of trying, trying to build a new society, trying to like come up with a new way and, you know, and realizing in a way that I think could be really, could be really lovely if this ends up sort of moving us back towards the end game of like, you know, it has the whole, the time of the commanders is over thing been kind of a misdirect. And what that actually means is that the time of the commanders in this kind of straight lineage that came through Cadigan's teaching, like that way of being is over. Like the world has changed and there, and we don't need that anymore, but that doesn't necessarily mean there is no such thing as a commander that Maddie couldn't be, you know, a commander who has a different lens on the world. It's just right. Like, I mean, it's sort of like what we it's sort of like what we were talking about last time where everybody has the black line. You know, we have the BTS pictures from the finale of everyone with black lines on their forehead where maybe Maddie, Maddie, like the time of the commanders is over, but Maddie is like the, the first commander to sort of carry out the actual vision of Becca Promhetta, which is not a hierarchical vision, you know, where it's sort of like where, where she is, uh, she offers guidance, you know, rather than sort of like dictatorship. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think that would be like a really, really sort of fascinating and and very potentially satisfying way to kind of wrap that up and sort of and wrap all these kind of things together, you know. Um, so um, yeah, but apart from that kind of like aspect of the the flame sort of backstory stuff, um, I was a little frustrated with Clark's. I was frustrated with Clark this week. I mean, or maybe with Clark's writing, because, so here's the thing. Here's, here's my bone to pick with the way that the Clark Maddie, uh, stuff played out this week. And it's like, in some ways, a very, very small bone to pick, but in other ways, like, I think, I think it's meant to be a small bone, but it has like a lot of kind of big implications that maybe are not intentional. So I, 
I am willing to buy um, that Clark is just so terrified of losing Maddie um, and specifically terrified that, you know, that having the flame and being the commander has made her a target of a number of people in a way that, like, very directly could lead to her getting killed. And I'm willing to, ex- you know, I'm willing to sort of accept that, like, that kind of fear, which we've seen, like, throughout the season, you know, like, over and over again, consistently throughout the season. Clark, when she's pushed into a corner where she thinks Maddie is in serious danger, she just, she just, she acts really irrationally and violently, right? You know, like, she shoots people in the head. She does all sorts of things. I'm sort of willing to go along with, like, all right, Clark kind of loses her mind. Like, she goes mama bear, right? Like, she kind of loses her mind when Maddie's in danger. So she's... And and that this part of what's happening in this episode is the kind of the culmination of that is that it puts her in direct conflict with Maddie and she starts doing things that are like increasingly kind of troubling. So like tackling her and getting angry and, you know, like throwing the worms back out in the desert so somebody can stumble over them, <laughs> um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So like I, I'm – and like there's a lot of, you know – it's not a good look, right? Like, Clark is not being, like, her her sort of how controlling she's being of Maddie here and then her kind of just, like, abandoning, you know, Bellamy at all to die to save Maddie. Like, it's – she's not making – she's not making, like, choices that are terribly sympathetic. But, like, I think – I do think that's some purpose, so I'm willing to go with that. The bone I have to pick is that – is that little bit where Maddie, you know, where Maddie says, like, if you take it out of me, I'll, you'll have to destroy it because I'll just put it back in. And then Clark says later, I can't destroy it. So Clark decides, like, she's not going to force, she's not going to pull it out of Maddie's head because she cannot bring herself to destroy the flame. So she knows that there's no point. And my bone to pick is this. Now, I understand, I think, I think that's kind of maybe primarily a plot thing. Like, they had to have an explanation, like, why does it Clark just rip it out of her head and smash it, you know? Right. Because, like, honestly, that's the actual solution to her problem. If Clark is so opposed to Maddie being the commander and having the flame, if she's that terrified of it, why doesn't she just smash Like, it's an easy fix. Just break the damn thing. Then no one can have it, you know? Like, problem solved. So they had to come up with a reason for her not to do it. And... And so the explanation is she can't bring herself to destroy it. And they don't really – so there's, like, two issues with this. Number one, they don't actually sort of directly explain why. Like, there's no on-screen explanation. Like, why don't you just destroy it? The implication is that she can't bring to herself to destroy it, I think, because Lex is still – her memories are there, right? But, like, here's my problem with that. Number one – that is that does not track with how in how like incredibly like murderously opposed to the flame Clark has been up until this point. Like it's just like this weird character one eighty where she's like, I will do literally anything to stop this flame from hurting Maddie, except I won't hurt the flame. Which is like right, what? like it doesn't it doesn't track. And then number two, I, which is I think the part that probably wasn't intentional but just bugs me. It's incredibly shitty. Of Clark to be like, I will murder people. I will leave my best friend in the literal universe to die a horrible, grisly death in at his sister's hands, get like murdered in the arena. But I won't break a USB drive because like 
my ex, my, my dead girlfriend's memories are on there. Like, that's just really not like, what? Like, it's just, it just, it doesn't work for me. It just like, it just, it, it, it doesn't track logically as a, as a choice that the character would make. And the implications of it are just like, so incredibly frustrating to me. That it kind of just pulled me out of that whole storyline. Yeah, and I and I think and and Maddie, Maddie making that textual is how we know that isn't an accident. Like Maddie says, like yeah. you were willing to let you know Bellamy die and all these other people die, you know, because of this. Like it, like it is. I think I think like Maddie forcing Clark to address that and the camera kind of lingering on Clark having to, you know, contemplate the fact that she did make that choice makes it feel like, okay, so that, like, that wasn't in, like, that was a, that was a deliberate choice that you're making. You know, like, that is, like, Clark, well, Clark did that, yeah. you know, and that is, yeah. 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 And I also and think, I, think that- I don't think, I don't think it's meant to be, I mean, I think it's, a, I, I think it's meant to be, I think, I think Maddie sort of like going for the jugular over and over of being like, you left Bellamy to die. You left Bellamy to die. Hey, remember that time when he saved your life the Mm -hmm, moment he mm -hmm. hit the ground and he's probably dead now because you left him there. I mean, I think that, I think those moments are meant to sort of drive home like a, that Clark has kind of reached this, this sort of like cross this kind of red line and the red line is leaving Bellamy to die and B we're meant to really be aware like this is something that is taking it that has a has emotional stakes for Clark you right. know that that like like you know I and which makes me glad as a as a as a Clark shipper and somebody who's just like loves that that relationship and whatever it's form like it's you know I'm happy that that they kept returning to like the fact that she did this is a huge deal. You know, that is the kind of red line. That's the guilt that she's carrying with her. Like, I think those are signals that's going to come back. I don't think that that by kind of saying like, but she can't bring herself to destroy it because of what's on there. I don't think that's meant. I don't think they intended that to mean like, therefore she cares more about the, the flame than she does like Bellamy. But like, that is the implication, which is, Again, super shitty and actually like works. It, it it makes Clark as a character not make any sense. Like, is Bell- leaving Bellamy behind that big a deal? If it's that big a deal, why can't she just smash a stupid computer chip? You know what I mean? It's like the chip isn't actually Lexa. She's not alive in there. It's just her memories, you know? So it's just it's just really, really frustrating to me. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I mean, I think it is I I think I think that that the you're right that I think it's a, they had to come up with sort of a plot, a plot device reason for the chip to stay in Maddie's head. And, mm-hmm. and this was, this was sort of, you know, I, this I was think that, they thought that, they that could reason. Kind of do it in one. Yeah. I think they thought they could kind of like do two birds with one stone. We're like, okay, well, well, one reason would be Clark doesn't want to destroy it because it's a tie to Lexa. And then that also kind of gives them a chance to be like a little nod to Lexa, you know, Clexo, whatever. Like, I think I think they thought it was kind of like a nifty little solution. I just disagree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think it works particularly well. Like, it's just sort of, Yeah. And then also, like, confirmed that, like, Maddie is experiencing, has Lexa's memories, which, again, has all kinds of, like, 
really, really fucking weird unintended implications in terms of like what kinds of memories she's experiencing of her mom. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when I, and it is, I mean, yeah, that is, <laughs> it, it definitely, it, it gets messy. I, and I think that because, <laughs> because they haven't, we don't have a lot of information about how, like, like we, it seems framed as though like, what's, you know, what's in her head is like, like the commander's like talking to Maddie and choosing what she sees. As I a, mean, I think that is the implication. Yeah. yeah. So, so, it, so they're like the, the flame somehow picks which memories are relevant. Yeah. It wants her to experience. Yeah. Somebody kind of shows you, you know, here's like, here, we want you to see this thing and experience it, even if you don't want to, like with Becca's right. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and they seem to be mostly memories of death and violence. Yeah. So, like, the likelihood that the flame would be like, and here's that time your mom had sex with one of us is unlikely. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I don't, yeah. I don't think that that is. Yeah. But, um, but it is, but I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I think is a, is a troubling juxtaposition. Um, and I, you know, I, and this gets into like, you know, like you and I are not parents. So talking about like parenting stuff sometimes on this podcast, it's like, is a little tricky because it's like, this is not personal experience. Right. But, but I yeah. do yeah. think that um, there are a lot of um, uh, complicated emotions that I've sort of seen, you know, like floating around in like in the fandom and stuff around um, how kind of physical Clark gets with Maddie at the beginning of the episode when she's running yeah. away. And, and yeah. I, and yeah. to me, I like, I feel like, like, I, th- I feel like I can see it both ways. Like, like it is like, it is intense and unhinged behavior. Like it is a behavior of mm-hmm. a desperate person. I also feel like, I think it, it makes sense in a way of like the way you drag your kid out of a burning building, as opposed to like, mm. you know, being the mom who like is like shaking her kid and screaming at her in the grocery store or whatever. Like, I think mm-hmm. like I, I, I would, I would not go so far as to characterize it as like, you know, like abusive bad mom behavior, even though it is extremely, you know, intense and forceful and Clark seems to even kind of scare herself with it. But that degree of urgency that she has to save Maddie from the thing that she thinks is about to happen to Maddie and the danger that she feels that the chip puts Maddie in that for me, that was the piece that didn't line up with her refusal to just take the thing out and smash it. Yeah. Like either that flame, that chip, that flame is such a humongous threat to Maddie that you're willing to, that you're like losing your control and your, and your, willing to cross every line and you wind up hurting her. But the justification is, I believe that thing is a humongous threat to your life and well-being. Or you don't. And again, the solution to that problem is take it out and break it. Which again, so, so I mean, like, I understand, like, I, th- I do think that a lot of this comes down to that's a major plot hole. Right. They had to figure out a way to plug. Right. But I don't think that this is an effective plug. And it winds up doing a huge disservice to Clark as a character because it kind of puts her in a position where her behavior isn't consistent and her more extreme actions 
are sort of undermined by decisions she makes, like emotional decisions she makes later. Like I'm willing to grant, like I'm willing to kind of go along with Clark is doing things that she wouldn't otherwise do that are crossing lines because she feels, she genuinely feels this palpable sense of danger. Like I'm willing to sort of forgive Clark her roughness in that first scene as long as I believe that she genuinely thinks this is a life or death situation. But her being later on like, I can't bring myself to break it totally undoes that. You know what I mean? Then I'm like, well, then why the fuck did you like throw Maddie to the ground so so violently? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, (laughs) I think it's just something where it's like, I, yeah, like there, there were, there were implications of this that I think that they didn't think through. Yeah. And, you know, and I also, I mean, and maybe we'll see in the next couple episodes how this plays out, but what I don't understand is like, um, you know, if she wants Maddie to not, have it in her head, but she can't destroy it, then I don't understand why she didn't just like take it out when Maddie was sleeping and then just be like, no, you can't have it back. And then like at some point later in the future, if Maddie decides she wants to have it back in and Clark is like, okay, fine, you can have it back. That that's like a separate conversation that we see, you know, but like, and you know what, like the annoying thing is that there is, there is, a simple fix to every single one of these issues. And that's simply for Clark to finally calm down and let, and, and admit that Maddie has her own autonomy and own choice over whether or not she keeps it in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if the decision comes down to Maddie sleeps and Clark has time to calm down and they have that conversation where, where Maddie says you didn't take it out. And Clark says, you know, like I, I couldn't, I couldn't take that choice away from you again. If you want it, if you want to have it, then, right. then that's a choice you get to make. But the moment you tell me you're done or you can't stand it anymore, just say the word and I'll take it out. You know what I mean? Like, all you have to do is have Clark say to Maddie, I'm, I'm willing, I, I, you know, apologize and say, like, I was so scared and I did these things, but I accept your choice. You know what I mean? Like, you don't even have to cross that bridge mm-hmm. of, I can't destroy it. It's just, it's creating a problem that didn't, that didn't have to exist. Well, and then also I think that, that, you know, handling it that way makes it a much, a much nicer, I think, cleaner parallel to the sort of parenting journey that Abby goes on with Clark, where she sort of finally has to realize like, she's not a little kid anymore. There's decisions I can't make for her. Like it sucks having to kind of stand back and like watch your kid put herself in danger, but also like, you know, that's like, that's part of the journey of being a parent is that you have to begin to learn how to kind of keep taking those steps back. And I think that by both reinforcing over and over again, as this episode does, like, like Maddie, like you are my child, you are my child. Like it is, you know, it is reminding us that like Maddie is a kid, you know, Maddie is 12. Maddie is not 18 like the delinquents were when they came down and that makes a big difference but she's not five you know and like like clark is saying and when clark says you're a child i mean like she says that to me like you're a child therefore like ultimately your choices are actually my choices you know what i mean right right yeah it's like clark uses it as a way to say like to to sort of take away to to say like ultimately i get to say what goes what's good for you you know and so and and that again that just kind of 
I, you know, I, I can understand, like, I, I've also seen a lot of stuff from people who are, and people who are, you know, parents. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, this is like, as parent, as a parent, this is horrifying to me. You know what I mean? Like, as a parent, like, and I have friends and, um, you know, who are fans of the show who are parents of 12 year olds who are like, I would not, (laughs) I would not do that to my child. You know, I would not treat my child this way, even if I was scared. Um, so like, I'm willing, you know, it's one of those annoying, like, it's, it's just frustrating because it's like, I am willing to go there with them in terms of like, you know, some people like, like Clark isn't, I'm willing to sort of be like, maybe Clark isn't like the world's best mom in this moment. When she gets scared, she does extreme things. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write Clark off for that if it was completely consistent and made sense kind of internally as a character, but it, yeah. And like, even if you got the sort of explanation with, you know, if you got the explanation with, um, it, you know, rather than than the I can't destroy it, we got the conversation between Clark and Maddie where Clark is like, okay, I, I promise I'm not going to force this on you. I'm not going to I'm not going to take it out until you ask me to or until you say it's okay if I do. Um, you could still have that moment where she asks about Lexa if you want to, and especially since like you know if if that moment, it is important to kind of reinforce the thing that Clark is afraid of is that she sees that being a commander means being a part of this cycle of sort of like death and horrific violence, you know? So like, so you can still have that moment where Clark says, you know, do you see her? And Maddie says like, that's why you don't want me to have this. And Clark says, yeah, you know, like, yes, because commanders die badly. You could still have that, but without all those other sort of messy, weird. Yeah. Yeah. like, destroying this piece of plastic is a bridge too far. Like, everyone I love can die, but I can't, I can't break the memory stick. Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it is, it is, yeah, it, it I, I'm, I'm assuming that we will in the next, you know, couple episodes, there will be some significant plot related reason why the, it still needs to be in Maddie's head. And we'll be like, oh, okay, so that's why. That's why there was this weirdness yeah, sure. about it. Yeah, but but it is yeah, but yeah. on its own merits, without without that follow-up, like with just what's in front of us right now, it does, yeah, you're like, this this lands weird. And like you said, like, and it's all it's all it's all fixable. Like it's all really fixable. Yeah. And yeah. um, and I think that, you know, the the question that I the question that I sort of have in my mind about it is is wondering. The fact that they didn't choose to do it, like the way that you just said, where it becomes about Clark deciding that, you know, that Maddie needs and deserves to have agency over her own body and over her own choice, whether or not she wants to to do this, because like as uncomfortable as it makes Clark, like 12 is a sort of standard grounder age for Nightblood. Like, you know, like it is for Maddie and for Maddie's culture, like this is, you know, she would not be treated like a child if she was an officiate at this age. She'd be treated like a warrior, you know? Right, Um, right. So like, so in terms of, you know, of, of her kind of maturity level, like, you know, it's Clark saying like, this is a choice that you can't handle. And like, Indra will be like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. You know, so, so what I wonder is like, the, the fact that they're choosing to handle it in this way where it is creating increased friction between Clark and Maddie and, and sort of pushing them apart in a way like where you, and you can see like, you can see later in the episode 
um, how unsettling it is for Clark to watch this new kind of like commanderified version of her daughter, like slicing that guy's throat open, sort of mm-hmm. casually tossing mm-hmm. off battle plans, like watching Clark watch her daughter turn into a new person is really unsettling to her. And, and the piece that I, that I don't, that we don't have the answer to yet is, is that because one of the things that the flame is going to be doing in terms of how it affects a relationship is leading towards ultimately like pulling them apart and separating them in some way, like sort of exposing a rift in their relationship that yeah maybe that maybe can't be mended like either 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 like a physical separation you know like if some people stay on earth and some people end up going into space with shannon kook on his spaceship or whatever in the finale um or (laughs) or if it becomes more of a sort of like an emotional separation like part of why their relationship is what it is is because for the you know such a huge part of Maddie's childhood, the two of them were, you know, like like with the Blakes, they were each other's only person. And there's something kind mm-hmm. of fundamentally codependent and unhealthy in that closeness that you forge mm-hmm. when you only have one other person in the entire world. And so Clark also kind of all along has been, you know, up until the point where everybody kind of comes back, um, but even kind of continuing, like this sort of expectation on her part of Maddie to be her entire world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like there are, yeah. there are a lot of challenges in that. There's a lot of problems inherent in, in a parental figure asking a child figure to do that and be that. And so, so I feel like, I guess the question that we, that we don't have an answer to yet is like, because there was a way for this moment to be leveraged as a way to like, bring them closer together and kind of repair a thing in their relationship and give them that conversation about like, you know, this is a choice that you get to make Maddie. And I, whether I like it or not, I'm going to respect your choice. And that they didn't do it that way, that they did it in the way that's full of like, you know, tension and, and conflict and, and friction and kind of planting the seed. I'm just sort of wondering, like, like it makes me think a lot about, where is their relationship going to end by the end of this season? You know? Yeah. No, that's a good point. It might, it might've just been like, okay. Um, the, the, the sort of two plot problems were like, how do we, how do we explain that Clark just doesn't like rip it out and destroy it? Number one and number two, but in a way where it's still two episodes too early to resolve this particular character conflict. So we have to, you know, we have to, we have to solve problem A without solving problem B yet. Right. Um, which is which is totally a possibility. Yeah. And especially, I mean, like, there's so many sort of uh, season one Blake sibling mm-hmm, parallels mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Clark and Maddie's relationship and, and in the way that Clark is kind of, you know, willing to sort of burn the world to protect Maddie and, and makes just kind of like. You know, and they and they lampshaded those over and over again. And Clark saying to to Bellamy, like, "Now I'm the one who's letting her heart rule her head." And so I think we're meant to kind of see those see those parallels. And so, um, yeah. So I mean, I th- I suspect you're probably right. I think that's probably it. Is that 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 beat is going if whatever that beat is going to be of of kind of like dealing with that particular piece of Clark Maddie tension. Um, it's it's happening in a later episode. So 
it couldn't really happen here, which yeah happens. But insofar as we are we are not we haven't seen the rest of the season and we won't for a while. Uh, just sitting with it this week is like, Mrah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It is. Um, I, yeah. I think it's it's. I suspect it's one of those things where, um, you know, I'm. I'm I'm mentally flagging it for now as one of those things that I suspect might play very differently on binge watch once we know where mm. it's landing, but on its own merits with like a week to simmer on it before we get any kind of follow up. I'm just sort of like, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm kind of like I like I see what you're doing. I think I see why you're doing it, but I also feel like you know, it I don't think that it works the way you wanted it to work. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, basically, basically, yeah. yeah. I see what you thought. I see what you were trying to do. I see yeah, what yeah, you yeah. thought you were doing, exactly. but yeah. it didn't really work out the way that it was supposed to. Um. Okay. So, uh, meanwhile, in another part of Shallow, uh-huh. uh, Abby is not having such a great day. <laughs> nope. Oh my god, that things are getting freaking dark. Things are getting really, really dark. Abby Griffin. Um, I, but I, but I, I, so I actually, I, I have to say, um, I really, I really enjoyed the, the Abby in this episode. Like, I, I, I mean, like, yeah, not, me too, like, me I too. didn't, like, not, not in a, like, that was fun to watch kind of way. Like, it was grim and dark yeah. and horrible. But also, I, like, I I felt like, you know, it always sort of felt to me from from the moment that we really get her kind of like beginning to pretty definitively push Kane away and then he kind of leaves to be in the other storyline and then the Raven thing happened. It really did feel to me, you know, like it's the rule of threes. We're sort of like going through all of Abby's most cr- crucial relationships. It always sort of felt to me like the place that this is leading to is that if somebody like if the pivot is going to come connected to a person, the it only really feels right for that person to be Clark, you know. So, mm-hmm. so Clark coming back into the story at the end of this episode in a way that you know, from how the episode ended and from the little bits we've seen in the trailer for the next week's episode, you know, seemed to indicate that she's going to play a really hands on role in like like now we've reached the pivot. Like this was this was yes. the rock bottom from which the the shift to rise back upwards is coming. So having that be connected mm-hmm. to Clark, I think fits perfectly. Um, but I think that, you know, so to get there, like she has to go through, you know, like a her darkest moment with Kane was Kane ending up almost getting beheaded in the fighting pit because of her. And her darkest moment with Raven was like, you know, like physically torturing Raven, you know, to keep her from breaking this machine. Um, so it's kind of like, so you keep thinking like, oh my God, like we're like, okay, so this has got to be rock bottom, right? Nope. Okay. So this is rock bottom. Nope. <laughs> not yet. No. So what's the like, so like the, the most rock bottom, rock bottom that you can possibly imagine, you know, I think, you know, in this episode, like, like seeing Vincent go full Vincent on these two guards and her kind of like, just like let, letting him do it. I was like. 
Okay. Which actually calls back in a really, really eerie way the line that Vincent said to her last week. Mm-hmm. Um, letting someone die isn't the same as killing, as killing them. them. Yes. Yeah. Because he kills them and she lets them and, die. Like, she doesn't do anything. Yeah. And so it's like, it is like... It is not, it is not good, um, but it is, <laughs> but it is also like, it, yeah, I sort of let that moment be like a little bit of like foreshadowing. And I, and I also like, I mean, like, I know, like, I know he's a serial killer who eats throats, but I'm also just like, oh, Vincent, <laughs> like, I still kind of, I still love him, but I don't know why. I, um, I was, I was, a, no, I, I was, too. My, my dis- <laughs> like my distress at how that whole storyline ended with, you know, in terms of him you know, going like full bloody attack animal um, was because like I, what it set up, I, I love the idea of like, you know, like she shocks his shock collar to like summon him. And then he comes in and he's like, okay, here's what I know. And I was like, oh, they're spy buddies. And then I was like, actually really kind of crushed that he had that great idea <laughs> and he came in to help. And she basically was like, no, no, no. Like, this is like, that's not about that. And, and it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. I need a fix. Yeah. And it was, so it was very, like to me, actually, the most painful moment of the Abby storyline in this episode was that she couldn't even stop for a second to register him being like, you know, like Kane's okay, everybody's okay, they're hiding out in the caves. That she was just like, I don't like, I don't, I can't, I can't think about that right now, you know. And and we know that it's because like she's in such extreme physical distress that like her body is shaking and she's like shutting down. Like you, like you understand why there's no room for anything else, but it's still like, that is a gut punch. Like that is a, like, this is how far, this is how far gone she is. Well, I mean, I think, I think this like is what tells us that this is, this is the true rock bottom for Abby Griffin because she's doing two things that she would never, had never done before and would never otherwise do. And one of them is, you know, like again, when somebody comes in and is like, okay, the per- you know, the love of your life mm-hmm. is okay. She's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, pills. And then the other thing that she always said that she would never do, like er- even earlier this season that she sort of insisted to Dioza that she couldn't do, was letting people die when she could have saved them. Because it was either reach for the shock collar or reach for the pills. Yep. And I don't think, like, I do think, you know, the the kind of, like, effect, the sort of, the... um the way that that was shot um, with the kind of like distortion of both the image and the sounds Mm -hmm. and the kind of slow motion, I think that was meant to convey that, you know, Abby in that moment, like Abby is not making rational decisions, right? Like she is not, she's not like sitting there like calmly thinking like, do I save these guys' lives or do I reach for the pills? Like that is, she is like sort of semi-conscious um, you know, shutting down in a state. And, and I think like the sort of, there's a kind of like, she reaches for the pills almost automatically, uh-huh. you know, like yeah. this is, she's, she's like sort of past the line where she's able to really think at all about what she's doing. It's just the chemical dependency has reached such a point that that's all that she can do. But like, that is the true rock bottom. Yeah. This chemical dependency has gone to the place where like it erases her personality and, you know, and her sort of, and her, her choice and her, and who she is. And there is nothing left but the addiction. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, what I really liked about, about the way that the Abby stuff was shot in this episode. And I, and I give full kudos um, to Ian for, for the, you know, yes. directorial choices that he made is like, this was the, 
this was the kind of framing of Abby that we've been needing since the beginning where the camera was giving us how it felt to be Abby. And that's the piece that was missing when she electrocuted Raven. That's the piece that was missing like during all of those, you know, like the, when she loses her patient and then Kane comes in and he sees and he's so upset, like all of those moments of Abby's trauma that were framed for us as being about somebody else. I think in this episode, both, both because of all of the, somebody else is being stripped away because it's like, it's her and Vincent and there's no other POV characters, you know, in this storyline really with her. Um, but also I think, I think deliberately and intentionally everything about, what happened to Abby in this episode, like we felt, we felt what it felt like to be her. So like the blurring of the vision, her, her shaking, her disorientation, her fear, um, you know, like waking up from her sleep and vomiting, you know, like moments of her alone, long lingering close-ups on her face and kind of seeing how like pale and shaky and sweaty she is like this, this was the, I think that was why I sort of, I felt, I felt hopeful, you know, like really early on, I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be the episode that ends in whatever is that kind of final rock bottom moment, because we are finally getting to be in it with her. And before it was really being shown to us as like, you know, Abby's addiction is a thing that is happening to other people, you know, and like, it's a thing that's also happening to her, but it is, it's a it's a plot driving mechanism. You know, it's what gets her, you know, allied with Dioza. It has this effect on Kane and Kane's storyline. It has this effect on Raven and Raven's storyline. Um, it has this effect on McCreary. It has this effect on her being used as kind of a, a pawn between these two opposing allegiance forces. Um, you know, it brings us Raven's mom backstory. Like, here's all the things that it's doing that have to do with either kind of other characters' arcs or moving chess pieces around the board. And, you know, and Paige has been killing it, but this, the structure of the narrative hasn't yet, up until this episode, really centered the kind of physical experience of detoxing that Abby is going through. And what And what I really, what I thought was so beautiful about like what I really loved about Abby in this episode is that like we see her like, you know, when, when McCreary comes in and he's like, you know, he's menacing her and threatening her. Um, you know, one of the, he does, she does two things that I think are really important. One is that he, he's, he correctly and accurately labels her addiction as a disease instead of like a character flaw, which is kind of how Raven frames it. Um, and, you know, and he kind of puts it to her as like a contest of like, you know, like your disease versus my disease. Like, let's, you know, like, let's see who wins. But he tells her like, you know, I'll give you your drugs if you fix me. And she says no. So like we've identified her, like what her line in the sand is. And she's stated, she's finally found something that she's willing to say, like, I would rather like, I'd rather have my body shut down from detox than do this thing. And the fact, so, so to me, it feels like the fact that she doesn't make it all the way to the end to get clean on her own is it doesn't feel like that's not a weakness to me. It's like, that's just like, because going through detox on your own is incredibly difficult. And so like she makes it part way and she's like, no, I can't, I need more drugs, but her, but like, 
we see at this point, like her intention is there. Like we see, like we get a glimpse of the Abby that she wants to be again, you know, who like, who is showing McCreary that she's not afraid of him with her like (laughs) barbed little one-liners, you know, um, (laughs) and, um, and her, and her understanding that she has like, even in, in as, you know, as deep as, of a, you know, powerful of a grip as his addiction has on her, that she understands the danger inherent in using this treatment on McCreary. Um, yeah. You know, and the impact that that will have on, you know, on everybody, on everybody's safety. So I feel like, you know, I think setting it up where we're articulating that there is still enough Abby Griffin left to be like, there are things that I will not do even to like, even to feed this, you know, this addiction that's like driving all of my behavior. There's choices that I won't make and that she holds out as long as she can alone. And finally, like, you know, she snaps, not because she's like, you know, not because she wants to, but because she tells Vincent, like, I could have a seizure and die, you know? Um, yeah, because detoxing from opioids is, is actually, can actually be. It can actually like, kill you. A, yeah. It is medically dangerous. Yeah. You know, it's not just like, it's like quitting smoking. It's more like quitting, you know, extreme alcohol. Dependence. Exactly. Like, yeah. Your like body it, cannot it has, physically co- function without it for a while. Yes. So, so that's why, so it felt to me like, like what I, I felt like I got what I, what I wanted to get out of, you know, Abby's rock bottom moment, which is like her, like she is, she is motivated to try to quit by the realization that, um, that her, like that it's different doing this for Dioza than it is doing it for McCreary and that she doesn't want to help McCreary or save McCreary or be part of, you know, of him getting his way. And, and she does everything in her physical power to kind of like hold out and like soldier on through without it before she realizes that she can't. Um, And, you know, and then like, so then the sort of the collapse that comes from there and it's not clear to me, I don't know, if it'll get clarified in the next episode, but when, you know, when Claire comes in and finds her, um, you know, whether that was like, you know, like an accidental overdose, like she was just so desperate. She was just like shoving all the pills in her mouth, whether it was on some level, a deliberate overdose, which seems like the least likely, or whether it was just like, she'd gone so long without them and was in, so her body was in such a fucked up place that then like, rather than, kind of re-stabilizing her back to feeling normal again, the pills had kind of the opposite effect Um, and, you know, and kind of just shut everything down. But it definitely feels like we've definitively reached a place where Abby now knows from here on out, like she has to kind of face the fact that the lie she was telling herself about like, I'm a better doctor with pills than without it. We've, we've hit the point where that's no longer true. You know, and mm-hmm. and even she yeah, like the lie that she's telling herself that like she had like I'm a, okay, I'm an ad, you know, I have an addiction, but I'm in control of it. You know? Right, like, right. I, I yeah, I'm making these decisions, and I'll decide when to end, and it'll all be fine. Like that, that is that's a lie she's been telling herself. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's and, not yeah. that's yeah. not reflective of the reality. And um, so I I think that that's I think that whatever happens with Clark in the next episode or couple of episodes in terms of, you know, I, I think we're, we're meant to assume like Clark, 
um, helping, helping her through withdrawal in like a medically supervised way. Like we saw her, like she's hooked up to a bed. She's got some kind of machinery there. Clark's with her. Maddie's there presumably. Um, so, so, so to me, this feels like, like emotionally and for who Abby is as a character, this feels right. Like she, she tried to quit on her own. She gets it now. She's, she's like, but she's also desperate and her body is shutting down and it, it is factually accurate that, you know, that going through this process with somebody like Clark who knows something about medicine to supervise it is a different procedure. Like even Kane couldn't help with it in the same way that Clark could, because Clark has all these things that she's learned from Abby um, that, you know, that Kane or Raven or Dioza or anybody else or Vincent, you know, couldn't be the person that Abby needed. And also emotionally can't be the person that Abby needs right now, which is that she needs somebody who can take care of her in, and in a way that Kane wasn't capable of doing because this was also something that was happening to him and so tied into his pain and his like desperation was hurting both of them because it was, it was not letting him be helpful to her. You know, he was enabling her and he was suffering himself and Raven does not like, because of how it sort of triggers Raven's own trauma, Raven wasn't in a place where she could have any compassion for what it felt like to be Abby. She was sort of seeing it in terms of like bringing back up all of this stuff that she has sort of buried from her own past. And so Clark, both as the daughter and as somebody who, you know, who has a set of medical skills to actually help, you know, move this along that nobody else does and being somebody and who somebody could like- who isn't like- emotionally involved in her addiction in any way. Exactly. That she wasn't there for the addiction, living through it with them. Um, So it's something where it's like, you know, like, like for Clark, I think it has, I I imagine it it will have, when we sort of see how it unfolds, shades of like waking her mom up from the city of light after the torture thing, where it's like this thing that I know isn't you has taken hold of you and I'm going to help get you out of it without judgment or condemnation or hate or feelings of betrayal for the thing that you did while you were under the influence of that thing. That's not my mother, you know? So I think that, I think there's an ability that Clark has to sort of meet it with some compassion and empathy and, and listening and support that is the piece that so far has been missing from everybody else in Abby's storyline, um, <laughs> except Vincent, you know, weirdly. Um, right. <laughs> and uh, so, so I, so I, to me, I feel like, um, you know, the only, the only thing that I, that I think I sort of wished for that I didn't get was that I was hoping that the pivot would come a little earlier and we would be able to kind of see a little bit more of like Abby on the mend. Um, whereas clearly I think in this one, it's sort of set up for like, okay, that's going to be all, that's going to be the next episode. That's going to be kind of like the framing device for how we get these dark year flashbacks. It looks like so, um, but I feel, but I feel like it all, um, I think it was handled in a way that was very, um, you know, and I, and I think uh, maybe because it was Ian, you know, because like he, like he knows Paige so well, he knows these, this character so well, um, you know, they probably did a lot of work as actors in terms of like, you know, Abby's journey of addiction, Kane's role in it, how did it evolve over the past six years? So just sort of like the, the intimacy of how, um, how the camera really let that be Abby's story, like Abby's interior life and Abby's 
physicality and how the, you know, how the addiction is physically affecting her. Like this is, we've, we've been needing that. We've been needing this story from the point of view of like Abby's gaze looking outward. And we hadn't had that yet. So I felt like it, I felt like it really, I thought they nailed that just beautifully. Yes. I agree. I thought that was really well done and it kind of, I mean, there was like also a bunch of like close-ups of Abby's face and a kind of like fisheye mm-hmm. sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. lens, you know, which kind of like so like so everything, every shot there and there was sort of juxtaposed with more sort of like standard or kind of like um, you know, you sort of regular kind of like neutral point of view shots, but there were a number of them that were you know any any shot that was like from Abby's point of view was distorted in some way, mm-hmm, I think, mm-hmm. and that was like a really I thought that was like a really a sort of subtle almost subconscious way of conveying the kind of like way that Abby's physical experiences you know mm-hmm. like the were were warping her perceptions um on like a whole bunch of different levels and i thought that i thought that was worked really well and was like you know a great credit to uh Ian's directing um that he figured out a way to kind of like, how do we convey the emotional interiority, you know, like, mm-hmm. and even the kind of like, the, the, like, convey the ways that this physical experience she's going through is, is changing what things look like and feel like and what feels possible and true mm-hmm. to Abby. Um, yeah, like it, the, the choices that she makes that seem, desperate and violent and crazy and out of character and whatever, you know, else to us from the outside make more sense when we're in that kind of like queasy, shaky, desperate, you know, dark, everything is, you know, everything is disoriented. The light is weird. The sound is distorted weirdly. Everything is like all topsy turvy, you know, like, like you feel why somebody would do anything to get out of that and go back to feeling normal yeah. again, even knowing that it isn't really normal that it, in the long run, it's making things worse. But like you, I think, I think what it does is so important is that it, it lets you understand why for her, the pills are a temporary, like what, what the pills are a temporary reprieve from, you know? Yes. Right. Like it gives yes. us our first little real kind of peek at that. And that's the piece that we've been missing yeah. before where it felt like, you know, we're like, we know that like, we know like pills are bad. She's addicted. She should stop taking them. We keep seeing her taking them. We're like, Abby, why are you doing this? You know, and now we get it. It's because in her head, it feels like that all the time. And the pills give her a brief pause from it. And she knows it's getting worse and it takes more and more and more pills to make even kind of a dent. And, you know, and it doesn't work all the time anymore. And, you know, and she's losing her ability to, you know, to focus and to do her job and to think straight and all those kind of things are happening. Like we're, you know, we're feeling it kind of getting worse and worse, but we understand now that like the, you know, the reason, like the physical reason for that need is because like now we feel how, you know, lost and disoriented and destabilized and, you know, dizzy and in pain she is all the time. And the pills let her sort of temporarily numb that and push that away a little bit. And I think that, yeah, like, like us understanding a little bit of like, what does it feel like to be her when she's in detox? What does it feel like to be her when she's, you know, 
drugged and more and feeling more like, okay, that's all kind of in abeyance. Like, I think that's the piece that we've been missing to understand, like, why would somebody like Abby Griffin do something like this sort of increasingly, you know, chaotic, desperate series of acts that she's committing? Well, and I think it kind of like reframes what she'd done in the past where, where before it kind of felt like, why would you choose to hurt Kane or Raven in mm-hmm. these ways, you know? And it sort of re- reframes it as like, the choice for Abby was never take the pills and hurt them in these ways or don't take the pills and don't hurt them in these ways. It's a choice, like the choice is always like, don't take the pills and suffer horribly in a way that like makes you completely unable to function mm-hmm. and legitimately afraid you're going to die or do take them and kind of be able to function. Exactly. You know? so it's like, yeah. We the 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 way that her choices look from outside of her experience, what even looks like a choice, you know, and the kind of consequences look very very different from the inside of the experience, where the choice, especially when she's really really in withdrawal, kind of boils down to to suffer, don't suffer, or you know, like mm-hmm. pain, no pain. Yeah. Or you know, it's like when when you get to the point where it's like so bad that she can barely think straight. Again, are you even? Is she even making a choice? Like, is it even sort of? like biologically logical to call that a choice right. rather than just like the force of this like incredibly in this this habit that's like so ingrained not just in her mind but in her body you know exactly so, um yeah, yeah yeah and i think that that's i think that that the context that we that we get in this episode for that sort of like understanding her perspective then like that that gives us the information that we were missing before when it was sort of being framed as about how sad it made Kane or how angry it made Raven or the physical pain that she caused to Raven, you know, or, or how it looks to the outside that she's sort of struck up this alliance with these, you know, thieves and murderers, like all of those things look bad to other people who don't, you know, who aren't feeling what she's, feeling like in a similar way to like with the chip, you know, like, like somebody who was not in the level of emotional pain and trauma that Jasper and Raven were in can't understand why somebody would voluntarily do that to themselves. But it's because you don't, because you're not feeling what they're feeling, you know, like, like, because you don't quite get what it's like. And, you know, and so so showing us what it feels like to be inside that mind is really important context for us realizing like why, you know, why would you choose to make that decision that then causes you to sort of be in this position where this other thing is you've given something else control of you and you're doing these progressively extreme things, you know, like that seems crazy to me. And it's like, well, because for you, like you're not living inside a body or a, a mind who is, you know, that's torturing itself doing this stuff. And and you were shown a way to get a reprieve from it. So you're going to take it, you know, like it makes sense if you're Raven or if you're Jasper, why the prospect of temporary release is alluring in a way that for somebody like, like Clark or Bellamy or Octavia or Kane and Abby, um, that intentionally choosing to erase that, you know, because you don't want to feel anymore, you know, is, is something that it kind of just like fundamentally can't relate to, you know? So, and I think it's a similar thing here, you know, where it's like the people like for Raven, Raven's only ever experienced addiction, you know, on the sort of, on the receiving end of how it feels when somebody that you love is going through it, 
you know, and how it hurts, how it hurt her as a child to experience that with her mother, you know, and Kane's lens yeah, for it is like, like real trauma, is you totally know, like it, it real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Behavior that that like you know that 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 cause psychological scars that kind of never completely heal over. So like, mm-hmm. so Raven's reaction is completely understandable. Oh, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, but also like, but also it like it means that she fundamentally like she cannot. You know, I feel like someone like Raven probably could not sort of access the space that Abby is in, which is legit, you know, because it's sort of like, you know, like in certain situations when someone hurt you that deeply, whether they meant to or not, asking you being like, well, we just understand their point of view can be another trauma. So like, you know, so that's complicated by that. But on the other hand, there is a whole other set of things that are truths about the experience of being addicted that sort of look very different from the side of the person with the addiction than they do from the side of the person who is materially harmed by the behaviors that addiction produces. Yeah. And I think it's complicated by the fact that like, you know, that for that Raven has, because it was trauma that was inflicted on her when she was a child, she has never kind of grown out of, seeing it from the child's perspective like she is not raven has not yet reached a place where she can see what her mom did to her what her mom went through with a degree of like understanding of what it was like to be her mother she is still seeing it and feeling it as like deeply tied to that kind of primal childhood trauma and like you said like that's that's like completely like psychologically like you know like she definitely needs therapy everyone in the show needs therapy but you know <laughs> but she but it isn't it isn't an unhealthy or unnatural reaction that's a normal response yeah, to it because because in the face of an adult woman that she loves and cares about w- with a drug addiction raven immediately reverts back to being that child because the trauma goes like all the way down to the bone and so she has no capacity to to sort of to let Abby try to explain, you know, like when she says, like, remember what it was like in the city of light. And Raven's like, I can't like I can't hear anything from you right now that that asks me to have empathy for where you're standing, which is like which which sucks, but is also fair, you know, like that for who Raven is and for how her trauma is kind of wired into her. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I think in a similar way for Kane, who like shared that trauma, you know, it's his trauma too. So it's like, you can't ask Kane to be your person to sort of help you through this when his own suffering at watching you suffer is its own trauma that he has been going through and has been carrying for years. And he needs his own support system for that and can't be your support system for your thing. It's like, you're both in such pain. Like you each need a separate person, you know? Um, And that's why I feel like Clark coming back in and being there like for Abby to support Abby, to be the person who can do that with no judgment because she didn't walk through that whole journey with her. And because she also knows who her mom is and can still see the Abby that she remembers inside of all these other things, the same way that she did, you know, with like, when Abby was in the city of light and Clark was able to distinguish between like, what is you and what is not you, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, so it's miserable to watch, but it's feels v- like very emotionally honest storytelling. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. It, I I thought that was very well done, although difficult to, to deal yes. with. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> um, speaking of very well done, but to watch. <laughs> Meanwhile, yep. over in the bunker. Yes. Uh, there are doings that transpiring. Um, <laughs> Where do I even start over there? Good lord. <laughs> um, well, yeah, yeah. I, um, <laughs> I, I mean, God, this episode was so good, and this whole storyline was so good. <laughs> but like, wow, we went to some <laughs> places. Um, I kind of like, I feel like I hardly even know where to start because it was like, like everything in Polis, which I, when I love it, when the show does is like, everything was all so tightly tied into one central question and story, which was like Octavia's increasingly shaky hold on power and escalating desperation to keep it, you know, to keep it under, you know, like keep hold of everything by any means possible without, but like her, her conviction that she can still get her way, you know, like her, yeah, her attempts to like well, get everyone else to change what they're going to do to give her the best solution possible. And her just utter fury when everyone's like, no, we're not going to help you. This is like you, you could you have an easy choice. You could call this off. You could just stop doing this. And you know, and that she's like, no, I can't. You have to like bend to my will because I can't course correct at this point. And like, and then first you know, like Indra and then Monty and then Bellamy and everyone being like, no, like if you're gonna choose this, we're gonna make you confront the fact that you chose this yourself, and like no one is giving you an evac. You know, and it's just like, <laughs> oh man. Well, why don't we just start? Why don't we start? We I mean, we could just go through it chronologically because I think there's something to be said for sort of like charting Octavia's descent mm-hmm. over the course of the episode. Yeah. Um, so like the first dilemma, I think the first thing that we that we get in the bunker is Octavia in her throne room with Miller and. Uh, Brell, I think yeah. is the name of the gra- the other woman. Um, and so, like the the dilemma number one for Octavia is that as a result of the events of the last episode, half of her army is refusing to march. Um, and Miller, interestingly, like I really, I don't know if we're ever going to get it, but God, I just I want to understand Miller. Like I want to know. know why. Because like T, you know, because he is he is so loyal to the Octavia to the point that he, you know, in that scene is lying to her about why they were like he tells her like they're afraid of sandstorms, um, and that's why they're not marching. And Brella's like, uh, no, tell her the truth. No, they're not. The truth <laughs> is, yeah, like the truth is that half of them are like, fuck you, Bloodraina. Like we have a commander, you know. Um, so, so I thought that was really interesting that, and I, I think it says something also, like, you know, it's one of those little, little moments where it kind of, it's, it's small, but I think it's significant for understanding how, first of all, how Octavia has so become the Blood Reina that she's become and how Blood Reina has become the Blood Reina she's become that evidently the people that she has surrounded herself with at this point are like, 
either because they're, you know, because as a, as a sort of reaction to her wrath or because they just so want to please her that they will, that they've sort of gotten to a point where they will like keep information from her in order to kind of like, I mean, like, like Miller, you know, does that because like he doesn't want to tell her Blood Raina's sort of hold over one crew is broken. Like he doesn't want to tell Blood Raina like that your mythology is being challenged, you know, that this ideology is being challenged. And like, it sort of makes me wonder like, is that for Miller's benefit, you know, or is that for her benefit? But either way, that kind of like, it tells you something about, I think that maybe the feedback loop that she's been in. Um, so, so then, you know, so the, so the problem number one is, uh, that half of her army won't march and they can't beat, since Elegius has guns, you know, has more, has more weapons, they can't beat them with half the army. And so, you know, Brel is like, well, what I want you to do is to bend the knee to the commander, but since you won't, the only other way to make people, everyone follow you is to like, basically like, Double down on what made them follow, you know, the reason why they follow Blood Raina in the first place, which is just fucking scare them by reminding them, like, anyone who crosses me dies in the arena. Um, so, um, and there's, you know, and so, uh, I think that's really interesting about one little thing that I kind of liked about, um, the way that this episode proceeded in terms of the dilemmas that that presented or the dilemma that presented for Octavia and then also for Indra um, is that like I last week after the last episode before this one, I was talking to some of my friends about, you know, the setup for this week and sort of like we were talking about how like, you know, it's, it's very, very clear, obviously for Octavia, like, you know, her relationship with her brother, obviously we know all about that. We know why it's so important. Like that's very well set up. Her relationship with Indra, she has this deep sort of close relationship with Indra. That's all set up. We were like, but they didn't, you know, we don't really know. We haven't gotten a lot of time with, with Indra and Gaia, you know, like that one felt kind of like, it's much, much lesser. It's sort of weird that you have these three people being presented as equal, but then one of them isn't sort of like completely set up. And I, so I did like this week that that turned out to be an actual textual piece of plot. Yes. That like, Part of the negotiations going on here are basically like Octavia's like there are there's one there are two people that I really don't want there's like one person I I can't even sort of wrap my brain around letting die or watching die right. and that's my brother there's one person I really don't want to die and it would hurt me a lot but I could cope with it and that's Indra and then there's Gaia who's kind of like that's a bummer but oh well right. um. You know, so like, so I did like, I was like, okay, well, that's, you know, that's a piece of it. And then that, that sort of, that clashes with, on the other side, Indra, for whom it's the opposite. You know, she's mm-hmm. sort of like, Bellamy can die and that's kind of too bad, but whatever. Um, I don't really want to die, but I absolutely will die if it means that the person I cannot ever allow to die lives and that's my daughter. Right. So there's a kind of like perfectly built in, you know, sort of, not only is Indra kind of, at loggerheads with with Bloodraina over this sort of these political questions, but also on the person on the level of personal stakes, you know, like what Indra when they get in that arena, the the outcome that Indra wants and kind of needs to have happen is the opposite of the outcome that um or the the outcome that that Indra is going to try to orchestrate is the opposite of the outcome that Octavia is going to try to orchestrate, which kind of added a cool little piece of it. And even and that even. 
at odds with how how Gaia wanted it to end. Like Gaia's yes, yes. vision and for how things were going to go yeah, down yeah. was was it's that she had she came into it with her own with her own plan, plan. that was not. Like, yeah. like they all three had a different, and that was what I thought was so cool about it was like, um, and, and God, I was, I was so, we can talk about this more when we get more into that scene, but like, I was so scared for Gaia this whole episode because I, know. I, I was oh like, my God. I know what show I'm watching. There is no <laughs> way that three people I love are going to go into the arena and all three of them are going to come back out again. But like. I don't, you know, and I don't want it to be any of them, but Tati's on another show. So it feels like if it's going to be anyone, mm-hmm. it's going to be Gaia, but I am not ready to say goodbye to Gaia yet. So, um, <laughs> and, but and so, especially under those circumstances. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but watching like, um, like you said, like the, the fact that, you know, that all four of these people, Octavia, Bellamy, Indra, Gaia, they all have a different plan and no two plans are compatible. So like, like yes. Octavia is basically like, you know, like her, her first gambit is like, you know, going in desperation to Indra, who is like still her teacher and her mentor, like no matter what happens and that her love for her is so deep that she basically is like, give me another option. And Indra is basically like, your option is like surrender or kill us. Like, and probably like realistically, yeah, they'll probably follow you if they watch you kill your brother in the arena. I really, really love. And like, I mean, this is definitely a part of like a textual part of, you know, the sort of Octavia Bladrena story in this episode. But I absolutely loved that we got to see Indra call Octavia's bluff. Yes. Like go in yes. there, you know, and it's like- Everyone called her bluff. Like my hands are tied. I can't do anything. And Indra's like, well- since you mm-hmm. won't a surrender, which is like your real option, yeah, um, or b just forgive us, you know, which mm-hmm. is your b option. Then your c option is you're gonna have to watch some people you love die, and guess what? It's gonna be your brother and me. Yep. So suck on that. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And then and then I love the like the sort of and then the kind of escalation of like like it's it's first it's Indra. And then it's Monty who we'll come back to. And then it's Mm -hmm. Bellamy. And Mm -hmm. all three of them tell her, like, nobody is giving you any cover to make this about Mm -hmm. anything other than what it is, which is you are choosing to watch your brother die. You are choosing it, Octavia. And everything that you've constructed of your whole belief system that makes you feel like it's necessity, that makes you feel like there are forces beyond your control that have shaped how you behave, that makes you feel like like everyone on the show always says, like, we didn't have another choice. We didn't have another option. This was the only way. That over and over and over again, these people who she trusts, who have only ever told her the truth, you know, like Monty has never bullshitted her. Indra has never bullshitted her. You know, they're looking her in the eye and they're saying like, if it's more important to you to hold on to your blood Reina mystique than to have a living brother, okay, but like call it by name. Like, like say that out loud to yourself, you know, in, in your dramatic shattered mirror and see how it feels because like, (laughs) that's what you're really doing, you know? And, and what I, what I just thought was so magnificent in, in the writing of that structure of the story in, you know, in Ian's direction, in Marie's face was watching Mm -hmm. her, 
her fury and pain and frustration and and anger as like you know her like her belief that like I can't I can't surrender I can't give this mm-hmm. up I can't let go I can't let go I can't let go somebody fix this for me somebody give me another out somebody like okay just then just let me somebody tell you let me win like Bethany yes. used to let her win exactly the game when she was a little kid. yes like somebody yeah. somebody just like fix this for me and mm-hmm. and nobody will and everybody is like you've reached the place where like you know, like this this was always where you know, the train was going to run off the tracks is when blood Raina meets Bellamy. Like when, when her mm-hmm. blood Raina power, you know, smashes up against the fact that Bellamy is finally the person whose life is on the line in a way that's different, even with Indra, who she says like, you know, like I love mm-hmm. her, but she's not my blood. Like, like Indra is like, she doesn't want Indra to die, but she can't lose Bellamy. Like her one last sort of mm-hmm. tie to like, you know, to her humanity. And so watching her um, and you feel like you feel her that moment when she's alone, you know, in the like before, before the mirror scene, but where you just, it just close up on her face as her, just like her like tears of rage that like, I keep offering people options to like, change the outcome of this to save me from having to watch my brother die. And nobody is going to save me from watching my brother die. And just that level of like, you know, like that depth of pain and motion, like Marie just like fucking killed it. Oh my God. Yeah. But and I love, really, but, Oh yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, sorry. Okay. I was saying, but I, but that, um, I felt like that progression of it was really important in terms of leading to, you know, the place that she gets afterwards, because we finally, like we finally articulate in in a way that that nobody around her can ignore that at this point, and you know, and, and Inji even says it to her, at this point, nothing that she is doing is for the actual greater good of her people. It is all nope. for her perception of the greater good of her people, which is that everybody needs blood Raina to be maintained as blood Raina instead of acknowledging that only Octavia needs or wants, or even benefits from that at this point in time, she's the only person who wins. If blood Raina remains blood Raina with no changes, everybody else suffers and would do way better under a whole different sort of structure. But this episode, like watching her go like step by step, trying to find any loophole that she could exploit so she could stay blood Raina and also get what she wants. And everybody sort of, you know, like, and even like even Monty is like, Monty loves Bellamy. He doesn't want Bellamy to die, but he's like, I'm not going to save you from having to face the consequences of the fact that you picked this, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was so, um, I thought it was such great, like the structure of it was so great. And you, but you like, you felt like I felt so deeply what she was feeling, like feel the walls kind of closing in on her, you know, until she gets, which kind of like makes that flip. But like, you feel her escalating desperation to have like, you know, to keep, to keep the thing that she wants and also like have all the other things that she wants and her realization that she has Mm -hmm. to choose and that she finally ends up choosing herself and choosing blood Raina is kind of like, like when Bellamy says like, you know, there's no coming back from this. Like that is true. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's for real. I mean, that moment when she said like, um, you can't save someone who's already dead was just really chilling because you can tell that like 
for her is like she feels like she's dead inside. You know, she feels like like there is there's no Octavia only Zool, yes, exactly. but like where Zool is <laughs> is Vladrina. And like that that sort of like the other really I thought another really chilling moment. Like I love that Inder also called out the sort of like made textual that distinction between Blood Rain and Octavia. Yes. She's like Octavia was my second. Mm-hmm. Blood Raina's whole other beast, mm-hmm. you know, like this Blood Raina bitch, you know, I don't I I don't claim her. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> but uh <laughs> but I thought it was also really chilling, like Octavia's puzzlement in that moment. Her sort of like, what are you talking about? We're the same one. Like I thought that was really telling and really and really sort of chilling as well because like it it tells you the degree to which she really has kind of lost herself in this sort of persona, you know, like, and I think, I think part of it is drinking her own Kool-Aid and part of it is like, again, you know, going back to that first scene, juxtaposing these people, all these people who will tell, who will do nothing but tell her the truth, who will not tell her comfortable lies. You know, they will not, they will not tell Blood Raina what she wants to hear. They say the truth. Indra tells her the truth. Bellamy tells her the truth. Monty tells her the truth. Versus Miller, who will lie to Blood Raina, you know, to, 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 to sort of conceal from her something that she doesn't want to hear, doesn't want to know about. Like, I think that kind of is a hint to like, you know, Octavia, there's a lot of sort of like collective reasons why Octavia wound up where she did. Um, being unable to distinguish between herself and this sort of like this, this like semi mythical figure. But I think also like, and this is a sort of testament to Marie's acting, I think, um, Ian's directing is that it also becomes, I think, really palpable in this episode in a way it hasn't always been before the degree to which like, there are a number of, I thought, the second time through especially, I noticed a number of really interesting parallels between Octavia and Abby in terms of the way that this, they each have this thing that makes them capable of continuing to function despite crippling pain. Um and and in a way, both of their stories are about their inability to master their dependence on that thing. And for Abby, it's the pills. And for Octavia, it's Blood Raina. Um, like she, I think, you know, when she comes out of the cell with with Bellamy and she's sort of having that moment of breakdown where she like, that's her last ditch, you know, is to go to her brother and be like, here's what you have to do to win because I can't bear to, to see you die. And he refuses to do it. Um, you know, she has that moment of sort of like where you can see, like, you can see the little sister Octavia, you know, like sort of starting to break down, being overcome with emotion. And then she goes over to that broken mirror and kind of regathers herself and, and sort of, and cuts herself on her arm, the same place that Bellamy cut himself to cover up, um, you know, the blood from the, the game they played when they were kids to put on her mask. I think that kind of gives us a hint to, you know, Blood Raina for, for Octavia, it is about power. You know, she does have this kind of addiction to power and it is about the way that she's kind of like subsumed one crew into her own identity yeah. in this way where it's sort of like she's lost the ability to distinguish between herself and other people. You know, like she thinks of them as an extension of herself and she's sort of so kind of like locked into that that she cannot 
bear to let it go. But also, like, part of the reason why that evolved is because doing that, putting on that persona, allows her to escape the, like, unbearable pain of facing as just a person, as just Octavia, the things that she's done. Whatever happened in the dark year, you know, and there's, we got a couple of references to that, you know, that, and then, you know, I mentioned that sunk cost fallacy, but I think the sunk cost fallacy is like, I, everything that I had to do, all the horrific things that I had to do to keep everyone alive, to keep them united, the things that I had to do to create Blood Reina, both as like the persona for myself and the, and the, and the sort of image of the people, like, if she let that go, then that means that she has to sort of confront, like, I'm just a person who did these horrible yes. things. And that is impossible. Yes, yes. Well, and, and that's and that's what I feel like is is the – that's, I think, the piece that I think that we're waiting to find out about with, with Miller. It's like I think there are people who were actively complicit in whatever the thing was that happened. And they all feel like if I don't – like – like if if we lose blood reina's blood reina-ness then we're all complicit in having to confront the yeah. thing that we did and the choices that we made and so like miller needs to bolster that sense in octavia of like nope keep doing what you're doing you're doing great <laughs> because then he has to also because face it himself if he was wrong yeah if he was wrong to believe in blood reina and follow her then he was also wrong to do everything that he did to support blood yep. reina yeah so then he's just a murderer or, you know, whatever. So it's like, basically it's like all this like chain of like, of rationalizations you have to maintain in order to sort of avoid the, the truth facing a sort of truth about who you've become. Um, like that's, I think that's what, that's what blood Reina enables Octavia to keep running away from and shutting out and that that sort of like that has sort of increasingly dire consequences for herself and others. And I think, you know, for Abby, like I, I was sort of wonder if like the addiction, if her addiction didn't get so bad because not because she was trying to escape physical pain, but because she was also trying to escape the psychological mm-hmm. pain of whatever they had to do to survive. You know? Yeah, like, I think so. So because, you know, because addiction often, you know, substance abuse and a, substance addiction um, even when it, it eventually becomes a chemical dependency, it often starts out as a psychological sort of way to avoid um, sort of psychological mental pain, emotional pain. Um, so like it was really fascinating to me the way the sort of like Abby Octavia parallels were working out in terms of like looking at their sort of, you know, their their respective kind of addictions and and what leads them to go to rock bottom um and i you know i thought like ian did a, such a great job with this episode but i thought like his work with octavia was especially great and i thought one thing like you know the, the sort of broken mirrors uh device was probably the most kind of like obvious one this kind of like there's octavia and then there's the image of octavia mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. both in terms of blood reina as an image that has been shattered and broken and distorted but then also like Octavia looking at herself and only being able to see a distorted image of herself rather than like a true and like, and, you know, sort of like the, her, her brother and Inja are trying to like give her more accurate pictures of herself or other pictures of herself and she can't see it. But one other thing I thought was like a little bit more subtle, but I thought was really fascinating was um, both in the way that she was shot and in the way that she was lit. Um, 
her eyes were were darkly shadowed in a lot of shots. And particularly when she looked in, like, the first time she looked in the mirror, the way that the light bounces back, you can't see her eyes. They just look like black holes mm-hmm. in her skull. And there's a bunch of other places where that happened, where she looked in a mirror. There's, a, like, when she was in the cell with Bellamy, they were lit from the top down, you know, in this yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's kind of, like, lurid and unflattering, but also creates these deep, deep shadows around her eyes where you can't really see her eyes. There's just these kind of, like, black black pits and i thought that was a really you know if you think about like the kind of idea of eyes being the window to the soul yes this kind of like visual metaphor like where where octavia's eyes over and over are are really just like dark holes there are no eyes there they kind of like give us a peek into her soul there's also kind of turned into this black pit like i thought that was a really really interesting sort of choice um visual choice yeah. on ian's part to sort of drive home um you know, in, in the, in the kind of visual narrative, visual storytelling, what's happened, happening in the writing and in the, the sort of conversations that she's having. Um, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And I, 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 I didn't notice the eye thing, but I, but I agree. I think that there was like the, the shots on her, like the way that her face was framed in, you know, in those sort of blood Raina close-ups was like really compelling. And one, one thing that I, that both, um, Sam and Selena um, caught that was in both of their reviews that I, that I had not caught before was I, I really enjoyed the kind of the symbolism of, you know, the shift from her painting her face with the blood of her enemies to painting her face with her own blood in a way that sort of mm-hmm. symbolized like mm-hmm. now her own worst enemy is herself. Like blood Raina's worst yeah. enemy is sort of, is both blood Raina and Octavia in a way, you know, like, yeah. like Octavia's yeah, yeah, wound yeah. that is that she gives herself to match Bellamy's wound. So it's inextricably tied to Bellamy, to their childhood, to the part of her that's still Octavia. Um, you know, like Octavia's blood becoming Blood Raina's war paint as she prepares to execute her brother, like the sort of the juxtaposition of all of those kind of, um, all of those pieces, knowing that she's giving herself a matching scar to his as she's painting herself with, you know, with her own blood in, you know, to send him into this. Like it was, there was, there was so much going on there, you know, in that moment, just with, you know, with her face and with those, you know, the, the transition that she goes through from being the Octavia who still has feelings, who's trying to like swallow her tears back down to sort of becoming blood Raina again and kind of putting on that armor, I thought was like incredible, like haunting and beautiful and incredibly well shot, you know, like little moment and and the, and the fracturing of the mirror too, like the sort of, the 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 broken version of herself that's all that she can see now you know mm-hmm. and, and also a fractured identity where yes where yes octavia blittering she's not a whole person you know she has these pieces of herself that that she cannot incorporate into a cohesive coherent self the octavia parts of her rise up but they have to be denied and pushed down in order for Blood Raina to function and, you know, and vice versa. I also thought it was really interesting, like, the when she painted her face, it's her own blood. Also, in the past, she painted a sort of, like, unbroken, like, she just covered her entire forehead in a kind of, like, unbroken red, just, like, in in, in all in red. And this, she, she smeared it across her whole face. So it's not just her forehead, it's her whole face. 
Um, but also it's streaks, yeah. right? So there's a kind of like, it's no longer just a cohesive one red forehead. It's like sort of broken up and streaky. And I don't know, that feels kind of like symbolic in a weird way too of of not like, that's Blood Reina, not one crew. You know, like this is not the Blood Reina who, who represents one crew. This is Blood Reina who is out right now, who is, who is protecting Blood Reina. Um, not looking out for the best interests of all of her people, but rather what's the thing that's going to keep her in power, that's going to keep her version of one crew following her. You know, I thought that was like an, an interesting progression that, that the makeup, like the, that what she does with the blood changes, um, in addition to using her own blood. Um, yeah. And I goes, I was thinking about the game that she and Bellamy talked about, or that she, you know, the sort of story about the game that she talked about with Bellamy too. And I think, you know, the, the sort of callback to a moment when Bellamy hurt himself to save her life, of course, was really, really important. And I think a very important reminder of how fucked up their relationship was. Yeah. It's kind of like, like this cute, sweet, happy little story she tells is really a story about Bellamy slicing his own arm open because the alternative was she died. Right. Like, that's a story for her. That's a story of her brother saving her. And for Bellamy, I think it's a story of deep, deep trauma and of that kind of like really, really like damaging codependent relationship that they had for a long time that it took him forever to break free. Yeah. You know, and what she's asking him to do is like hurt yourself to save me again. You know, like this is the the Bellamy that I'm asking for is the one who would sacrifice every piece of himself and his soul to protect me. And what... What he says is like, I'm not that, I'm not that guy anymore. I draw the line, you know, like I, I won't sacrifice my soul <laughs> to save my sister anymore, you know. But I think like the other interesting thing about that story about the game that she described and like the, the choice of specific game and like a couple of people pointed out, I think, um, I know Selena, I think pointed out on Twitter and then another one of our friends, I think it was Alicia pointed out on Twitter they're kind of like maybe intentional, maybe not um, sort of painfully ironic parallel of, um, you know, the first person who touches the ground loses. Yeah. And Octavia was the first one of the delinquents to touch the yes. ground. Um, yeah. Which like, I feel like that, I mean, it's so perfect. I'm like, I, that can't be unintentional, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> well, and and the other the other thing, so I, I saw like Robin, I saw Robin tweet about that and I was like, okay, well now I'm furious. Oh, maybe it's Robin. It was yeah, Robin, it was yeah, yeah. It yeah. Robin, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, um, sorry, Robin. <laughs> but the uh, but the other thing that that made me think of in terms of a moment that that could be foreshadowing. So so it's like here what that means, like here what that could be sort of symbolizing, like first one that touches the ground loses is that like, you know, because like in that moment, because of what Monty does, which we'll come to in a second, that sort of standoff between Bellamy and Octavia, like – Bellamy temporarily wins it. Like Bellamy's side wins it and Octavia loses. Yeah, and she yeah, has yeah. to kind of escalate yeah. to get it back. But also Octavia, you know, hitting the ground before Dioza hit the ground ah, made me feel like, yeah. is that, is it an even like sort of longer, like more slow burn piece of foreshadowing in terms of like how this whole one crew allegiance conflict is going to play out in terms of like yeah. Octavia losing that. That's a really good point. Yeah, no, oh my God. If this ends with like Allegius, like Dioza getting eaten and, and Octavia like being banished to space or mm -hmm, something, mm -hmm. like I'm, oh, that would be, wouldn't wow. that be cool? That'd be an amazing yes. Piece of foreshadowing. 
Um, the other, but the other, like, thing about the game that that particular game that seemed um, about that story that seemed like maybe significant to me is so she also the other part of the story is like she says, you know, that that they so they played leapfrog where you jump from you know table to table and try not to touch the ground. And she said that Bellamy hated that game, but he would always play it because she loved it. He would always let her win. So again, she's kind of reminding her like. Like her memories are sort of like reminding him, like, remember when you were the big brother who would do all these things that you didn't want to do, you know, for me. But I think the other, like, I was thinking about, like, why would Octavia love that? And why, why would, like, what else about the game could be sort of symbolic? And I think, I was thinking about, like, why would Bellamy hate that game? And I think, okay, well, like, it's a dangerous game. Jumping from piece of furniture to piece of furniture. Um, for the exact reason, you know, uh, which is, which is sort of borne out by what happens at the end of the story, which is like, you're jumping around at some point, someone's going to slip and fall and get mm-hmm. hurt. So maybe, you know, if Bellamy hated it because he saw that it was dangerous to Octavia and Dane and, and Octavia didn't care. And then when it did hurt her, Bellamy kind of like took away the consequences. There's a kind of like allegory there for for kind of what's happening with Octavia and Blood Reina, where she's like, she plays this increasingly dangerous game. You know, the stakes get higher and higher, and she kind of refuses to accept what the stakes are. And this is a moment where she needs Bellamy to be like, all right, I'm going to make it okay again. You know, although ironically in this sense, you know, in this case, like by saving himself, and he won't do it, you know? So like, this is the final flip. Um, but yeah. I thought that was, I thought that whole scene was just like really, really cool. And like, oh my God. And Marie and Bob just like were amazing oh my God. in that. So scene. good. Like, yes. So, so good. So they, I mean, everyone's, incredible. everyone's acting was like on fire this episode, but I, I felt like, it, yeah. you know, in particular between them and like you said, like in that, you know, in that scene where we're sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting because there's so much of like, this is this is the the biggest moment, but it isn't the first moment where we've sort of seen Octavia, like you know, like as Blood Reina, like needing a Blood Reina thing, attempt to kind of like strategically deploy a moment of emotional connection to Bellamy to try to get him to do what she yeah. wants. Like like she does it a little bit in that. Um, like when she when he's at the computer and she comes in to check on Echo's progress with the eye and she's like, look, like, like, you don't like I haven't thanked you enough, like for saving us, mm-hmm. you know, like like it was like it was really shitty down here. You arrived just in time. We're so like, I'm so sorry, you know, um, and and it's clearly like it's both sincere and also a tactic. And he sniffs out the fact yes. that it's a tactic and he's basically like, mm, I'm not playing. Um and it doesn't mean that she isn't happy that he's there, but it means that she's leveraging, like she's sort of playing the role of Octavia Blake, your little sister, to get what she needs from him as Blood Reina. And he's like, I'm not stupid enough to fall for that. And this, in some ways, it was like, it was that same kind of hybrid of like both a, like both a genuine moment of both of them kind of revisiting a time in their lives when these dynamics were all felt simpler um, and, mm-hmm. and a reminder that, you know, she says that she's dead. Like she says, you can't see someone who's already dead and she perceives herself that way, but she isn't because she still has the capacity to remember being Bellamy's sister, like to feel, to still feel something when those stories come back up, even while the whole time she's using that 
to leverage the thing that she wants him to do, you know? And mm-hmm. um, so I like that, you know, I, I just really like how many, how many layers there always are, you know, every time Octavia says or does something where it's like, you know, she's not, she isn't, she, it's like, she's, she still isn't fully like, like, a hundred percent blood drained to the point where there's zero Octavia left. There's always just enough Octavia left that we see that these things are never easy for her. You know? Um, yeah. Like yeah. there's always that part of her that's fighting about, it. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that kind of like that, the way that, like you said, she kind of deploys those childhood memories in this. And I think an interesting way in which it is both sincere and manipulative, but maybe more on the sincere side in this kind of, in a, in a sort of fucked up way is like what she needs from him. All, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, the, all her manipulation through that whole scene is to the end of trying to get him to say he will do what she says so that he doesn't die. Like her end goal is I, you're my brother. I cannot bring myself to watch you die. So Please don't die in front of me because I put you in the pit. So like, so it is all motivated by her love for him and by that connection, by that, that, that last little piece of Octavia that even she doesn't understand anymore how she can't kill. You know, like when she's talking to Monty, she's like, you can tell she's sort of like, I, I, I don't understand why I still feel this way. I don't really want to. Like, she can't turn off how much she loves Bellamy, no matter how much she, she wishes she could. So she goes in there and like she's trying to push him to save himself. And and so what you know the I think the, the another layer of complexity that's like so interesting is like basically what she says is like remember remember what being my big brother used to mean? I need you to be that big brother again. And and what she doesn't fully recognize, she didn't recognize then when she was a little girl and she still doesn't recognize now I think completely is what being the big brother back then meant for him. And, and the ways that her asking him of asking that of him is, is asking him to hurt himself again. And I think like, you know, like in some ways you can kind of understand that because she's like, she's asking him to live, you know, so it's not like she's like, Hey, can you please like slice yourself open again? But she doesn't understand. You know, like that, that the line that he won't cross is like, he's asking, she's asking him to kind of like kill a part of his soul. Um, and that's the thing that he won't do anymore. And so, and, and like the, the, the thing that's really sort of like fascinating and complex about Octavia is that I think she hasn't matured emotionally as much as Bellamy have, has in terms of understanding their past relationship. Right. Like I think she still sees that as an idealized kind of relationship and, and, doesn't realize that Bellamy has reached a point where he's like, I can't, I cannot be that guy anymore, you know? Um, so yeah, I just thought it was really, that was like such an amazing scene. Um, so let's talk about Monty because that's of course the final, the final, like the, I, the last final turn of blood Reina, which is like, for me, that was, I was like, when when Octavia went off and she fucking burned that hydro farm rather than allow oh my God. her people to decide like, oh, hey, we can stay here. I was like, 
okay, I don't know if there's any coming back for for Bladrena. Like, yeah. I that I think is a line that you cannot uncross. Um, and I did not see it coming. I mean, I probably should have. Me neither. Well, I kind of like, I mean, you know, Monty came in with that like miracle solution when there were still like something like 10 minutes left. And I was like, yay. And then I was like, right. There's 10 minutes left. Yeah. Something bad is going to yeah. happen. But until that moment, I was like, it never in a million years would I, th- would I have thought that she, you know, was would have done that. And of course, like the parallel, the direct parallel then between Cadigan burning Becca. Right, Becca right, screams, yes. You know, like, like I could save us all. Like, mm-hmm, I have the ability to mm-hmm. save us all. He, he, the bunker isn't the only way to survive versus Octavia setting fire to the, to the, um, you know, to their actual solution for ironically staying in the bunker, but kind of the yeah, same thing. Uh-huh. That was really. Yeah, no, I loved, um, I loved that. I thought that was so, it was so chilling because it was such a like, you know, like that's the moment where you, where you finally realize that, like, you know, that I think even for, even Octavia at this point must know that 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 she is like like so there's a piece of her that must know like I'm doing this for me, and I like that this is not like like the recognition of the fact that like she would rather. You know, like everyone keeps trying to rationalize with her, like, like why would you fight a war? Like, burn up like the last survivable land on Earth. Like, why would you just, you know? And and it's because like she's bought into, you know, the myth of her own, like, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out when we get there. The most important thing is to win, and then we'll deal mm-hmm. with it. You know, um, mm-hmm. she's bought into that so much that she, um. You know, she isn't able to think in practical, concrete survival terms about what's best for the most number of people. She can only filter things through, like, the fear that she's experiencing of her own loss of power. You know, like, that's the only thing that matters to her. And, you know, and the fact that, like, the fact that she doesn't kill Monty was the only, like, really big surprise. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, like, because he just... (laughs) Because he just like walked right in there, you know, and he basically was like, she's full of shit and she's been lying to you. <laughs> you know, like it isn't even just that he presents an alternate solution that that causes yeah, the like riot. He tells everyone, oh, hey, PS. she knew like she knew and she deliberately withheld that information in order yeah. to force this exact. Yeah. Situation. So like it's not even just that he reveals you don't have to be these people anymore. It's that now the seed has been planted where all of those people know, like even, you know, even the most like diehard loyalists, like everybody knows um, that she made a calculation that she would rather starve you, you know, like she Mm -hmm. would rather have you all be hungry than have, than, than, have then and not even like then then you know have her power back but like keep her power in the exact same way you know like she could she mm-hmm. could surrender yeah. and keep all her people in polis and they could all live in polis but she'd know that out there was that valley that she didn't win and it would feel like a loss to her and it would feel like weakness to her even if she and dioza never interacted again for the rest of their lives <laughs> and she was well, totally I fine say, i will say this I will say this in defense of Octavia. Like, okay, I think one, 
mitigating factor to the idea that like that it's entirely about like she will have known that she lost, which I, which I'm not disputing is a factor. I think the other factor is that you know we've kind of gotten over and over again this sort of moment where well first it was Cooper who talked to Monty and said like even if we could fix the hydrofarm you know we can't live here anymore like you don't know what we went through we don't know there's there's associations with the place that make it intolerable and I think that's hinted at when Octavia says to Monty let the ghosts have this right, place right. you know so I think I think there's an there's an element of wit to or like an element there a degree to which for Octavia living in the bunker is Psychological is like intolerable. Like this is not a place. Like if there is another place in the world that she can physically be, she cannot bring herself to live in this place. I think that, and I do think that that's the other factor yeah. there. But like, but uh, but like, but of course, like the other side of that is like, she could just walk away from it. She could surrender and just leave. Right. You know? Like she could. She doesn't have to stay there. She could give up and then be like. You can like make me go live in like a, a a shack on the edge of Shallow Valley and tell me I'm never allowed to interact with anybody else. If that was really the only problem, it's like the interaction of she cannot abide the thought of continuing to live in the bunker. And as far as she's concerned, the I equals everybody else as yes. well. So like whatever she does, everyone else also has to do. And like it can't, you know, like. It's not just like, well, I'm going to make this choice and everybody else is free to do what they want. So it's like there's the kind of like toxic, you know, interaction of those two factors. Well, because I think it's because she like she what she can't face, I think, is the prospect of of returning to being merely Octavia. You know, like it's like it's about it's about the need to maintain her status as Bloodrena, which requires that other people follow her as Bloodrena and like continue to defer mm. to her leadership and power and you know and and status and you know control. So like she, like she couldn't like she couldn't just sort of wander off in the desert and be like, y'all do whatever you're gonna do, you know, pick a new leader, I'm out, I can't live in this bunker anymore you know, whatever, like she, it isn't, I think it isn't just that. Like, I agree with you. I think like that for, you know, getting those sort of seeds planted from both her and from Cooper of, of the fact that like, you know, who they became inside that bunker is another piece of what the Valley offers them escape from that kind of, you know, and, and, but I think like for Cooper, you know, like as a farmer, I think that, you know, I think the the hope of there being a fresh start somewhere else that wasn't tainted by so much trauma was really like appealing to her kind of just like on its own merits, just like being like mm-hmm. being able to like be a farmer someplace else that isn't here, you know, like we're. Yeah, because she was willing with Monty, she was willing to be like, sure, have it. I don't yeah. care. You know, like I'm getting the fuck yeah. out. But if you want to try to turn this thing around, have yeah, and- at it. And so, like, the difference between, like, Cooper and Octavia is that Octavia is like, I don't want to be here. And I don't want literally anybody else to mm-hmm. choose to be mm-hmm. here. Everyone has to follow me. So I decide we're not doing right. this. So I'm Exactly. And, th- and that I think um, – I think that difference yeah. is really key because, like, Cooper recognizes in Monty, like, you know, who she – 
if she didn't know him personally, she at least knew his mom, you know, like she, she knew yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like she's from farm station. He's from farm station. There was a degree of like, I think understanding and, and kinship. Like I think she gets, she got on a level that Octavia never got, um, why the idea of the dying hydro farm as a puzzle to be solved was appealing to Monty. And, and she, you know, and, and if Monty can turn it into a habitable place, like, cool, your mom would be proud of you. Go for it. Do it. I'm, I'm leaving because I personally can't be here anymore because this is a place where I did horrible, terrible things I don't want to talk about. But, you know, but like if, (laughs) if it makes the world better and more habitable, for you know the next generation like go to town kid you know and i think that that's that right that yeah, farmer yeah. mindset as opposed to the warrior mindset which is kind of what octavia and monty's mm-hmm. conflict ends up you know sort of becoming mm-hmm. about and- which i love i'm like so into this like it's the most georgic thing ever like farmers yes warriors, yes and sometimes they're the same but then also and, and like two sides of sort of like sometimes opposed mm-hmm, coin, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, or and like that idea that like war is the thing that disrupts farming, which is the thing that keeps mm-hmm. us alive. You know, like, I'm just like, I'm so, I was so. You have a little it. Georgics boner <laughs> right now, don't you? <laughs> I do. I do. It's not even little. <laughs> I have a huge Georgics boner right now. <laughs> oh God. No, it's like for real. It's, and, yes. I, and I think that it's like, um, you know, I think one of the things that's really that was so powerful in that scene um, between Monty and you know and Octavia was like, you know, was the ways in which it was both um, at the same time it was Blood Reina dealing with a traitor who was like you know working against one crew, and it's also. Octavia and Monty who have had this relationship that goes all the way back to when they first landed on the ground. And, Mm -hmm. and both of those relationships kind of, you know, being intertwined together where it was neither all one thing nor all the other, I thought was really Mm -hmm. fascinating, you know, because like she, you know, even though she suspects that there's a strong possibility that Monty either willingly or unwillingly was like an accomplice in her poisoning. So like, Technically, she should throw Monty in the pit with everybody else, but she doesn't. She doesn't even consider it because of the part of her that's still Octavia that recognizes Monty. But also, she's enough blood reina to realize that, like, even when her friend Monty has a solution that will save everybody's lives, but it threatens her power. Like, it fixes every other problem Mm -hmm. except that there is then no longer any need for a blood reina. She's like, nope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought I thought it was really okay. So like the other the other kind of like thing about that that I thought was sort of uh in terms of like significant detail. So the the flowering plant was a ghost mm-hmm. apple. Um apples, of course, being traditionally the forbidden yep. fruit. Um and then also uh Octavia called Monty and Harper Adam mm-hmm. and Eve. Um, and the, the sort of the valley, the green place is called Eden. So I think there's like enough things being dropped there in terms of like references to, um, you know, to that, those, those sort of like biblical ideas that 
I would not be surprised if, like, we're being set up so that Monty and Harper wind up, like, whatever happens at the end of the season, you know, Monty and Harper do wind up starting that project to sort of, like, reestablish humanity on, you know, like, humanity on Earth as farmers, as caretakers of the Earth, you know, like, terraforming, like, re, sort of making the Earth, like, you know, habitable and fertile again. so, uh, so I thought that was really interesting. Like, you know, if, if we get to the end where it, an ending of this, of the season where we have some group of people staying on earth and some group of people, you know, going to space or whatever, um, I think Martin Harper will definitely yes. be staying for sure. Yeah. And I, I think it <laughs> so was. Monty can finally be the farmer that he yes. wanted to be. And I think it was, I, I like that we, you know, that we saw that he still has a vial of the algae, you know, like, like it, it is, it isn't yeah, over. Yeah. Like she, you know, like Octavia. And he has one of the flowering yes. plants. Yeah. Too, he has one of the you know, plants. So like she didn't. And he has, um, and he has a thing of algae left and he, you know, so it's like, like all, all he needs is you know, land somewhere and he can, you know, mm-hmm. where free of, of people like Octavia and McCreary fucking shit up just to fuck shit up, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he can like, he really can fix this. Like he really can mm-hmm. begin the process of, of bringing the earth back. And I think it was so beautiful that like, you know, as, as grim as this episode was and as grim of a sort of final battle confrontation as it's setting up, I think that Monty really, um, you know, he he really deeply exemplifies this this sort of the hope and possibility that at least that it, for at least some of these characters that like there is a better future that the you know the earth can be saved, parts of it can be saved that like that there are people who have the skills needed to sort of make, you know, to bring the world back, to like make a better world, you know, and, mm-hmm. and letting Monty, mm-hmm. you know, be the, the symbol of that. I think it was, you know, it was, it was really beautiful to see that like, like even though it didn't last very long to see that even after six years of like living under blood Raina, after all having done the horrible things that they've done and like living in this, you know, like hell pit that, that if not in Octavia, at least in everybody else who follows her, there's enough humanity left for them to realize that they would rather do it Monty's way, you know, like that they, like that they see the flowering plant and then they're like, yeah, okay, blood rain, like, you're done, blood rain. And they, like, ripping down the chain link fence, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Like, that there's a there's a desire to ha- to be different and to have a different way of life and to, you know, and to escape from the kind of, you know, the, the, the torture that she put them through and the things that they had to become to survive in that bunker – there's a there's a desire to get away from that like and everyone except for Octavia has that. So again, like at, you know as with Bellamy sort of reaching the point where he, you know, finally decides to poison Octavia, there's it's a sort of continual like honing in and honing in and honing in on the fact that like only this one person here is actually the problem. You know, like the the society that she created yeah. crumbled the instant 
it was presented to them that there was another way to be and that she was kind of holding them hostage for her own purposes and not because they really truly had no other choices, you know? And yeah, well, and and I think it was because like the whole, the, the one crew and blood Raina were based entirely on the premise that, um, that Jaha gave her of, our enemy is death. Anyone who steps out of line brings us closer to death. They, therefore, they are the enemy. Like it was almost always premised on you follow Bloodraina or you die. And Bloodraina does the things that she does because that's because like that way the most people live. And so, and the instant that bunker opened, that stopped being true. So, and that changes the sort of moral situation as like, that you know entirely fundamentally and like i think it is it is really meaningful that this entire episode is is octavia denying that that she has the choices that she has um and it's funny because like so i would i this week i'm teaching a summer class and this week i was teaching paradise lost the last two days i've been teaching paradise lost so i've been you know (laughs) (laughs) spending a lot of time in gardens with adam and eve and and fruit and um and with Satan. Um, and the, the thing that's, I think, you know, like, I, almost certainly not intentional. I'm not, I'm not saying this because I think, like, they were really meaning to sort of, to invoke or to reference, um, Paradise Lost, but that, that I kept thinking about because of, because I was reading Paradise Lost, um, is, um, so, like, the thing about Satan, there's, there's, like, a really interesting set of parallels between Octavia and Par- the Satan of Paradise Lost, um, because the thing about Satan in Paradise Lost, um, one of the reasons why he is Satan, why he is the embodiment of, you know, why he carries hell within him, as it says in the text, is um, he keeps lying to himself and to other people, other demons and to Adam and Eve around him about whether he has a choice and what choices he has. So he's constantly sort of framing things, like sort of trying to say, like, I didn't have a choice in this case when he really does. Or I did have a choice in this case where he really didn't. Or like he didn't make a choice in this case where he really did make a choice. And in particular, like the thing he's constantly sort of skating away from over and over again, is like one of them is like, when he chose to rebel against God, that was a free choice that he made that all the other angels could have made. And some of them didn't, some of them didn't. He keeps trying to sort of avoid that and blame God for setting him up into that situation. But the other one is he's constantly sort of like, well, now that I have made this choice and I've fallen and I'm in hell and I'm being, you know, eternally punished, there is nothing I can do about this situation except double down on it. The only like... Here I am. God is a horrible bastard who hates me. You know, I'm tortured. I'm miserable and I'm being tortured. So, like, what can I do? There's nothing I can do except just try to get back at him, you know, in whatever way I can and try to, like, grab whatever power I can to make sure that God doesn't completely win. And the thing that he's, like, ignoring is that he has a choice. He could choose to repent. He could say... What I did was wrong. I have sinned. I repent. And, you know, and like, rather than keeping doubling down on the thing he did wrong, he could choose to recognize the mistake he made and not keep making it. And like, when I was rewatching the episode today after 
after teaching book four of Paradise Lost, which is one, that's the one where he arrives in Eden. And then also the one it's like has a whole, like this whole long thing at the beginning where it's like Satan, like coming up, like sort of admitting to himself, like, okay, I fucked up. I had this choice and I made the wrong choice. And maybe God has a, nope, okay, nope, I can't, all I can do is, you know, like, continue on the same path. I kept thinking about Octavia in this, like, this weird way where she's, she's like, (laughs) she's almost like this, you know, the Satan of Paradise Lost, where, like, there's this one sort of original mistake that she made, which was falling in love with her own power and becoming obsessed with sort of maintaining and claiming her own power. And she keeps making choices to defend that over everything else and then lying to herself or trying to lie to herself about what it is that she's actually doing and refusing to admit, like refusing to recognize as choices the choices that she's making. And people keep saying to her, you are choosing not to surrender. You are choosing not to say, you know, like my time is over or I made a mistake. You are choosing to put your loved ones in the arena. And she keeps trying to say like, no, those aren't choices. Those are what I have to do because she won't, she cannot admit to herself what it is that she's actually unwilling mm-hmm. to let go of. Yeah. Cause everything um, is always somebody else's right fault. Like there's always, there's exactly. always an exterior exactly. force, exactly. another person to blame for for putting her in a position where she's like, you don't understand, I have to do this thing. Like it's all her her framing of every event is that like, you know, like this is like, this is your fault for not listening to me when I told you how to get out of doing this arena thing, you know, or this is Dio's fault yeah. because whatever, you know. Um, and, you know, this is Clark's fault because of Maddie or, or what like the, that every, everything that happens that, that makes – Octavia have to do something that the part of her that's still Octavia knows she doesn't want to do, knows is bad, knows is going to hurt somebody, knows is not going to give her the response that that she wants, you know, but like she feels like she has to do it. Like the part that she still is is resistant to, is refusing to acknowledge is the fact that like she's not, like you said, like she isn't willing to call her choices choices. She's just like, well, you know, the world held a gun to my head. What was I supposed to do? Not burn a farm? You know? And you're like, well, yeah, yeah, Octavia, that's yes, exactly what yes. you're supposed to In do. Fact, Not burn yes. a farm. That cor- correct. <laughs> that is the choice you should have and right. could have made. But instead, you decided to burn a farm. Right. That is the choice that you made. <laughs> and that makes you terrible and wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The fuck is wrong oh, with you? Man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So, um, but yeah, like the fact that they, you know, that that plant that was flowering was an apple, mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. like, okay. Yeah, because like, it could have been anything. The, it could have been a protein crop. It could have been whatever. Anything. But it's like, okay, mm-hmm. it's an apple and it's called Eden. And, and there's a ghost mm-hmm. apple too. Which actually yeah. like a ghost apple. And I think, I think there's also another really interesting, like in another sort of set of, Parallels to the sort of biblical story, um, in a, but that go in a different direction. I think, like you know, so the the apple uh, in the story was is technically like in the in the Bible, it's never called an apple. It's like the fr- the kind of fruit is never named. That was a sort of tradition that rose up. I think. In yeah, the, it's probably a pomegranate. I think. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, like, it's sort of culturally become an apple, but that's not what it is in the Bible. In the Bible, it's the fruit of the tree of knowledge. 
Um, and so there, there's a bunch of interpretations of the, you know, a bunch of different interpretations of that story and in which the, the act of eating of the forbidden fruit represents a whole bunch of different things, you know, and, and like, so paradise, in paradise lost, it's about obedience and free will. And then, but like, that's just, that's Milton's version. There's a bunch of other, other ones, but like the fact that it's, it's always the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge specifically. And so I think that there's really interesting potential set of parallels because there's, you know, in addition to the kind of like Monty Becca parallels and, and Octavia Cadigan parallels, which I think are, are, really like sort of clear and being set up. We, of course, we also have mm-hmm. Maddie and Becca parallels because Maddie is the commander, you know, she's the inheritor of Becca's blood and of her, uh, of her, of the flame as a piece of technology, the flame as representing knowledge, mm-hmm. um, Becca's knowledge and forbidden knowledge, you know, like knowledge that was, it, it, both in terms of the, the flame being forbidden knowledge and then technology being forbidden knowledge that was forbidden by mm-hmm, Cadigan mm-hmm. that was like taken away from people. Um, and then, I mean, that also kind of like builds in some interesting ties to Prometheus. Oh, yeah. Especially being called yeah, yeah, yeah. the flame as a sort of like Prometheus, you know, that, that like, that, that's the, that's the gift that he gave humanity that, that, you know, he was killed for. Um, so, so having that apple and that kind of reference to, um, Adam and Eve, you know, sort of like, and, and that idea of like the apple being the fruit of the tree of knowledge and the possibility that the kind of like solution coming together here is about like, and, and the fact that like this is growing because Monty has knowledge, because right, he's right. using the knowledge of like, of, of science, but also of agriculture, um, to rescue humanity rather than, um, sort of brute force in the way that, that Octavia says is like farmers won't save the wor- world, the warriors will. Um, and it, and that's kind of like a, a you know, like what's going to save everybody? Is it knowledge? Is it skill? Or is it, you know, like the ability to violently assert your will, right. you know, to, to conquer. Um, and so I think there's that, that's an interesting dichotomy in terms of like, if that same dichotomy is kind of playing out in the Becca Cadigan thing. Yes. Where it's, yes. it's Becca can save everyone through knowledge, through skill, through technology. And, and Cadigan is sort of like trying to save or claiming to save people through, you know, violently asserting and defending his will. Um, and then he kind of like, the flame comes to represent that will and the warrior rather than the farmer and knowledge. I think there's a really interesting way where like we have sort of Monty and his apple and that sort of as a representation of knowledge and Maddie and the flame becoming a representation of knowledge or being sort of returning to being a source of knowledge in terms of like memories from the commanders Mm -hmm. rather than just an avatar of power that I think is like, there's like a really, like a lot of potential there that I'm Yeah, no, I I think so too. I think that there's, um, I think that that we're, we're getting some interesting little kind of hits and, you know, hints and, and um, theories, I think popping up of like how, how all of these things could end up sort of merging in, you know, in the end game into what the kind of final um, either final sort of battle or kind of how the dust settles after the battle, what those things could look like in a way that wraps all these pieces up into like things are starting to kind of merge into one storyline with one trajectory, you know, which I think yeah. is really satisfying. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And seems to be building sort of slowly towards a bunch of different themes that hadn't really been connected so far, kind of knitting together at the end. And also, I mean, also with Dioza and Kane too, you know, in, in terms of like the, the sort of thread of like in Shallow Valley, you have, you have warriors, you have people who see that as a, as a piece of land to fight over, to assert control and power over. So, and McCreary kind of saying, this is our land, this is our land. And this kind of like, we will, we will violently seize and then hold this land versus Cain who looks at it and says, this is a place where we can cultivate right, right, exactly, things, where we yeah. can grow things. You know, we can, we can build and like building their homes in the ground, you know, planting trees, you know, sort of, he's sort of looking around and looking at this land as a farmer, not how, and, and versus like Diosa who kind of comes in, she's like, I don't, I don't want war, I'm planning for peace, but she sees it through a kind of like, at first through a kind of like military strategic lens as territory to be occupied and defended. Um, and then she she starts to come to see it as Kane sees it, you know, when she's making the pitch to Mar- uh, to McCreary's people at the end of the last episode. She says like everybody will have their plot of land, everybody will have their own farm, you know, versus McCreary who's just sort of like fuck everyone else, we're going to grab it. So I think there's a bunch of different ways where we're getting a kind of like f- underlying conflict between the kind of like the warriors right, and the farmers, right. you know, the 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 destroyers, the people who think in terms of violence, conflict. Um, versus the people who think tr- think in terms of creation and growth. People who think like, what can I grab and what can I sort of defend against others? Versus people who think, what can I grow? What can I cultivate? Right. Um, well, and the and and the people who are who are yeah. more who are thinking of it in terms of um, what I want, like the sort of the short sighted perspective of like. What do I want for myself versus the people who are like, yeah, because Geosa even from the beginning has this where it's like, like, what do we collectively need in order for all of us collectively to survive? Like the way she first justifies to McCreary when she teams up with Kane, she's like, we don't have farmers or engineers. They have farmers and engineers. Mm-hmm. Like we need these defectors. Like we need the people that have this skill set mm-hmm. to come over to help our side because otherwise, you know, we're all going to be dead in six months. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. Land land is meaningless. Like if you occupy the land, it doesn't do you any good if you don't understand how to like make things grow right. so that you can live how to do it, anything you know? with it yeah and so i think that like the, <laughs> yeah, the inherent yeah. immediate difference between dioza and mccreary you know is is very much the difference between octavia and many of the people that are around octavia is this idea that mm-hmm. like um for mccreary and octavia there's a sense of it being about winning and about me getting what I want and about me getting to destroy anybody who threatens what I want. And then phase two, like, okay, McCreary, what are you going to do with this valley when everyone around you is dead? And you're like, congratulations to me. I conquered the world. Then like, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, like, like without yeah, a doctor yeah. to cure you, without farmers to actually cultivate the land, like you're going to eat whatever, you know, food was stored up. And then in a like, and then next year you're going to be dead because you're going to all be out of rutabagas. You know, like what? Like he has no plan. And mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, and Octavia also has no plan. Her plan extends as far as like I want to win, and I want to maintain my power. And and I feel like what's interesting about the relationship between Monty 
and you know, and kind of what he what he plants in the minds of the rest of one crew in a similar way to what Dioza planted in the minds of the rest of the Eligios people before Macquarie took over is that like, you know, no matter what these people have done, no matter how violent they've been, no matter how, you know, bad the things are in their past that they've had to do to survive, that for the most part, on the whole, those groups of people are willing to shift to a nonviolent way of life or a less violent way of life in order to survive. And the holdouts are this dwindling, smaller and smaller with each episode group of people who follow the two kind of chaos agent leaders. So I think, you know, I think the sort of central question of like, who gets Eden, who deserves to live in Eden, who's going to make the most of, of this world, who gets to be the people who live here. Um, you know, I think, I think drawing all these sort of strings, you know, close together, moving every character that we care about, you know, towards sort of the same physical location where this conflict is going to take place. You know, I think that we're getting a lot of thematic resonance around this idea of like, you know, what, like, like the question that, you know, that Monty asks Clark, you know, way back earlier in the season where he says like, you know, if like, if this is what we have to do to keep this land, like, do we even deserve it? You know, like, do we, Mm -hmm. do we deserve the earth if the way that we get there is by destroying the earth? Yeah. And Monty, I think, like, was the first, one of the first characters to kind of, this season, start calling Mm -hmm. things by their name. And again, sort of calling out, calling out that lie that they kept, or that sort of, like, premise that they kept telling themselves is like, well, we have no choice. It's either kill this guy or nothing. And, like, Monty's like, well, Mm -hmm. no, you always have a choice. You just have outcomes that you either are or aren't willing to accept. You know, but, like, you can always just not kill people. You just have to be willing to live with the consequences. But that's always an option that's on the table. And you're not willing – always an option, you know? And, like, and Millie (laughs) – and Millie. (laughs) Um, Monty here, like, we see him, you know, that that pledge a couple of episodes where – between him and Harper where he's like, I I, I don't want to kill anyone anymore. And she's like, you don't have to. Well, he's living by that. And it's not easy, you know? Like, he has to say, like, I won't interfere – you know, I won't do what you want me to do, save Bellamy's life. And of course, like we know, we find out later on in the episode that he wasn't being facetious when he said he had a plan to save Bellamy. He does. It's the, it's the plants. Um, but you know, but for, for Monty, like at the end of the day, like he has made that hard choice. Like he will not kill anybody or help anybody else kill someone, even if it's to save the life of someone he loves. And that is, that is hard. That is hard. And, and there are two sides to that, you know, like, because it does mean that he would have to sort of allow events to go forward that result in the life, the the death of someone that he loves. But he has sort of faced that choice head on and, and sort of refused the premise of like, well, you, well, you just can't let anybody, you can't let someone die. No matter what you have to do to stop the person you love from dying, you have to do it. He's like, no, you don't. And I won't do it anymore. Um, which again, in like an episode and in a season that's full of people kind of like finally reaching a point where they're like, actually, that thing where you think, where you, you're telling yourself, I can't do anything else, like I don't have another option, right. that's not true. And I'm going to tell you exactly what the options are that you are yep. refusing to admit are options. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and 
Monty and Indra are the MVPs oh my of the season. They really are. And I love them the most. And like, if everybody would, everybody should just listen to him, them, but they can't because if they did, then everybody's probably right. solved <laughs> half a season too early. <laughs> uh, Literally too good for this world. <laughs> I know. It was, but it was so nice to like, you know, we've, we've had so, we've had so little of, of Monty this season, like he's, you know, Monty and, and Harper too. Like, I think even, you know, even more so like they've really been, they've, they've really been in the background so far, you know, and, um, you know, and, and that like, you know, every season there's some character, some group of characters who never get as much screen time as you want. And that's just kind of just like the deal. And it's a bummer because I, you know, love them both, but I've been waiting for, you know, I've been waiting for there to, for Monty to kind of come back to the forefront with, you know, with the stuff about, about his kind of perspective on the world that was really foreshadowed for us at the beginning, you know, like about how he feels about coming back down to earth, how he feels about the trauma that happened there, how he feels about the kind of person that he felt like he was going to get pushed to be if he, if he re-entered, you know, that, um, and, and so, so I kind of felt like because I was introduced to us so early, I was like, okay, so at some, like at some point, like Monty is going to like sort of, you know, soar back in with like a big chunk of plot. He's moving forward. And I, and it was really satisfying for us to see like this episode, we really got it. It's like, we're setting up like Monty's going to figure out a way to, you know, to, to bring the earth back, you know, which is so beautiful. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, mm-hmm. and I think that I, I, I think having it come up this time sort of in juxtaposition with, you know, Octavia's sort of refusal to entertain that as like a way that, that people can be because there's no room for her in that, you know, I think, um, I think it was, you know, I, 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 I'm interested to sort of see how it plays out in the next couple episodes, but it did really feel like, I feel more hopeful that like the end game of this season, however, the sort of twist comes about is that like, I think they wouldn't introduce this here if it was like, just kidding. We're losing all the algae crops are dead forever. Earth is barren and uninhabitable. We all have to leave now, you know, like, like it's going to, Monty's going to bring the earth back. Like that's just, I feel like that's where we landed and that makes me feel really good. Yes. Me too. And I also really like it as, I think it's a really, really nice way to resolve the kind of dark night of the soul, uh, you know, that Monty went through after he read yeah. Jack's letter, you know, as a kind of like, he faced that despair of really coming to sort of, to, to understand what his best friend was going through and, and to understand like the depth of despair that, that Jasper, Jasper experience that wasn't just like trauma, you know, it wasn't just like PTSD and, and grief for Maya, but it actually was, it went deeper than that. It was that, the, it was that Jasper really came to believe that the world and the earth was sort of irredeemable, that it was broken and painful and that, and that there was, there was only one way to escape that cycle, you know? And so, so I'm 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 grateful that we got to see Monty kind of to go. Th- to, we got to sort of see that letter get read and see him sort of come to understand more fully what Jasper went through and the kind of like and and what he was thinking and feeling. Um, 
but I really, really, really love that, like, we got to see Monty really, like, go to some very, very mm-hmm. dark places, you know? Like, not like he just, like, brushed it off, but, like, actually, like, for a while, kind of be like, Jasper yeah. was right, you know? Like, when I look around the world right now, what I see is everything that Jasper was saying. Um, but for him to kind of be able to process that and and find a different way out of out of that that sort of, like feeling of darkness and despair where Monty could kind of stop and go, you know, where he could sort of reach that rock bottom where he could, where he said to Harper, like, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't like live in a world like this and I can't do the things that this world keeps making me do. And like, and Harper is the one, I think like this is what makes Harper so important is like Harper is the one who said, you don't have to, it's okay. It's okay. Like you can say no and you can Mm -hmm. do something different and I will be there with you. You know, like we will do this together. And that, that kind of like, and, and Harper as a character too, who like, she also understood, you know, like she was there with, with Jasper for a long time, Mm -hmm. you know, like she reached that nadir point, that sort of feeling of like, why even fight anymore? Like what is all, if all there is, is fighting, 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 to keep fighting. Like, I, I can't do it. You know, she reached that point where she almost gave up. And so, and so like for Harper to say that, I think it comes from a place of like, really of like, again, it's not sort of like, it's not just like she's brushing it off. Like, no, it'll be okay. We'll find a solution. She's like, I know that feeling, but we can get through this. So I, I really, really like that out of that emerged kind of like Monty saying like, I have the solution. You know, that I know will work. I know the algae will solve this problem. And nobody who's quote unquote in charge will listen to me. But you know what? Fuck it. Like I can, I can make the world I want yes. to live in. Yes. And I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to make this world. I'm going to, I'm going to prove to everyone around me that I can make things grow. That, you know, that like if you put your effort into, into growing rather than fighting, then that can pay off. Um, and that, and the fact that that, has the possibility of what can save everyone, you know, and what and what can sort of and like remembering that the reason why the earth is currently burnt to a crisp is because of nuclear weapons ultimately. Right, right. You know, it's because this because like the problem was there were so many people and the AI looked around and went like all people do is fight and cause conflict and harm and so I'm just going to obliterate everything with the like weapons of mass destruction that you made. And then that's also what sort of triggered, you know, like ultimately the second prime fire. And so the fact that Monty in this like post double apocalypse world looks around and is burnt to a crisp. And he says like, everybody looks around and they see nothing here except for this one miraculous spot. But I can take nothing and turn it into something. I think is just like a really, really beautiful sort of storyline to give Monty and Harper and, and like makes it a perfect adamant. Yeah, exactly. Like they're, they're, they are the sort of wellspring of of new life, of a new world, of new possibilities. Um, and and like there's a kind of like cool reversal of the Eden story there too. If if the sort of apple thing, if that's like a call to the tree of knowledge, if instead of taking the apple from the tree of knowledge is a sin, the original sin, the co- thing that caused the fall. If instead that that's the thing that causes the rise, this is a kind of like redemption for humankind in that way too. Like I just, I, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's really, it, yeah. Well, especially because it's, really it's like if they're, if I'm the, sure. <laughs> they're, they're saving Eden by bringing, like they bring the apple into Eden as opposed to taking the apple from Eden, you know, and, and in the original story, you know, like in Genesis, mm-hmm. the, the sort of the dark twist to it, which has been made me, 
you know, very, very wary of all these sort of Eden comparisons all season long is like, you know, in Genesis, of course, you know, like nobody gets to stay in Eden. Like every, like the, you know, the, yeah. the humans yep. are all yep. kicked out. They're expelled, They're expelled from, from Eden, Eden and they have to wander and then eventually settle somewhere. But, okay, but, but Claire, that's also why humans are farmers in the garden. Exactly. They, exactly. Yeah. 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 And just grew. They were kicked out into the desert and what they had to do in the desert, they had mm-hmm. to learn how mm-hmm. to make things grow in the desert. So there is that also that kind of like, there's like a reversal, but also a sense of like, we're going to return to Eden, but not abandon uh, the place. Right, place, right, you know yeah. What I mean? Like there's a kind of like, we're going to make Eden expand out to encompass the yes. entire world. Yeah, like we can't, we you can't know. stay yeah. in the place where, you know, all these things sort of pre-existed and were provided effortlessly to us, we have to make that somewhere else. So I think, so I think it's still totally mm-hmm. possible that it could end up that like, like shallow Valley could still end up, you know, getting burned up or the worms could come back or, or that like if shallow Valley is Eden and it ends up being, you know, partly or completely uninhabitable or, you know, or parts of it stay, but the village is gone or whatever. Um, But we have Monty and Harper and their algae and their apple tree, and they could plant a new Eden Mm -hmm. anywhere, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and that's Mm -hmm. the, that's what I feel like the, the hope, you know, the hopeful ending that they're setting up, I feel like is this idea that, um, that any place could be the new Eden, that any place could be the new sort of flowering of civilization and and place where humans can live and thrive and survive, even if that place ends up not being Shallow Valley or not being this village um, or not being Polis or whatever. Yeah. I mean, like, even if the end game is like Earth itself is the is the paradise that humans right. are expelled from and so we have to go out mm-hmm. to an asteroid right, right. and terraform it, whatever, you know, like that still that still holds true. It's it's Monty and his algae and his apple tree that are the kind of like pieces that are going to make it possible exactly. to to carry forward. And like I the the like the nerd in me is just really happy about that. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, fortunately, there are no more breaks. So we will be back again next week uh, to talk about 5.11, The Dark Year, where we will finally, (laughs) finally discover whatever the hell it is that happened in that bunker that made everyone Oh, man. (laughs) I'm not ready. (laughs) Uh. Here's the thing. (laughs) <laughs> I that did occur to me if the thing that happened in the bunker is cannibalism which is what we've all been speculating about for a million years there is a kind of like weird sick parallel in Abby in her like darkest moment watching Vincent like bite right the like out of like like Vincent is a cannibal right? yeah like, that's his yeah thing. he like killer and a cannibal mm-hmm. and he like keeps her hands and feet as souvenirs and like Bites him with his chompers, yeah. which which feels like part of me is like that's a lot of cannibalism. Like if we have cannibalism in the bunker, and then we also have a cannibal <laughs> right? on bunker cruise, like we've gone four full seasons with no cannibalism, and now every storyline has to have it. I'm just kind of like, okay. I mean, you get a cannibal, and yeah. you get a cannibal, and everybody you get gets a cannibal. A cannibal. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Oh, my God. And, like, okay, so, you know, like, Harper was 
there's like jokes going around fan about how yeah. was a ghost because like no <laughs> right. one had actually interacted with her for several seasons. So it's like, what if there was a cannibal storyline in Space Crew as well? Where like the secret <laughs> is they ate Harper in space. And and it's like a sixth sense <laughs> situation where it's just like her ghost hanging around now. <laughs> Fortunately, she is not. She's she's Eve. She's alive. She's fine. Um, but that would be funny. <laughs> anyway, yes, there's a there's a whole lot of <laughs> going on potentially. <laughs> um, okay, but for now, that's all we got. This one. Um, I should have said at the beginning, but now at the end, if you were like, man, this is a lot rougher than they usually are. There's a lot of likes and ums. Uh, we did not get a chance to edit this one um, because I am going out of town uh, for the weekend. And Claire is at... I, well, I'm, a, I'm adjacent to Comic-Con. Uh, I do not have a pass, but yes. She's adjacent to Comic-Con. <laughs> she is, she is yes. in San Diego, occupying right. the city in which Comic-Con <laughs> is happening. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, so apologies if you got to the end of this and you're like, <laughs> wow, guys. These really bitches are rambly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> uh, but if you got this far, then I guess it wasn't that bad. Uh, all right. We'll see you next week. Anyway, so that's all. Bye. Yep. Bye. Uh, all righty. Yeah, Stompson.